The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome on to our third to last 15 and 60. It's gone by so quickly this year, but we must soldier on. This is going to be the last traditional 15 and 60 that we do because what we're going to do for the last two is to just take stock of how all the young guys on these teams in the East and West have progressed this season. I haven't determined exactly how we're going to do that yet, but that's going to be the focus over the last two weeks of the season. But today we're going to go generally in order uh, of the standings in the Western Conference uh, with a couple deviations from that. And as it has been since before the All-Star break, that means let's start with the Houston Rockets, Danny. Yeah, I mean, they're just on a tear for a, basically a permanent tear is the way it feels like right now. 56 and 14, 7 and 1 since the last 15 and 60. They are number one in net rating, number one in offense, and number eight in defense projected to be 60 to have 66 wins, which would put them, I believe, four games clear of the entire rest of the league. And that doesn't anticipate how many Warriors guys are out. So I think the lead will be pretty significantly past that, depending on how it works out. And we each watched kind of separate games with the Rockets this week. I did keep kind of an eye on the Houston-Minnesota game, but I watched the Houston-New Orleans game intently. But there was a common thread in both of them, which I found truly fascinating, which is the zealousness, and I mean that in mostly a positive way that they have used on their switch everything approach yeah and they just do it everything all the time doesn't matter who it is against minnesota carl anthony towns just fine switch james harden on to him no problem and then they're always looking of course to switch behind the play and i've commented on this before but i think the brilliance of this system number one they have the personnel to do it now right harden for all of the complaints about him his ability to just not get back down in the post due to his strength i mean he is so strong like we saw him get a step back on Taj Gibson today where I mean Gibson is like a huge power forward and James Harden like went to the step back and just knocked Gibson back before he stepped back and got a wide open shot at him so Harden is definitely strong trying to back him down is not the greatest approach uh so they've got him they've got Chris Paul who, who's really strong they've got Eric Gordon who's really strong so those are really their three main perimeter guys that at least can put up some resistance in the post they're not going to give up extremely deep position they can at least like wait until the double team comes and then they're always looking to switch of course behind the play and that provides them really i think with their communication and that was always the problem with this houston team when they would try and switch against the warriors in past years was their communication just sucked they would just have so many breakdowns and now they've gotten to be pretty airtight on that even gerald green has been playing a little bit better there he was killed them in that game against the warriors when harden was out because and durant was out as well because he had just signed with the team and also he's gerald green so he doesn't execute 
but uh i think and joe johnson didn't play in this one uh ryan anderson is back he might be another guy that could be attacked by some of the best teams but you know i don't think anderson is going to be a part of their main units now uh although he was on fire in this game against minnesota so yeah that switching defense really uh, has been relatively impressive you know they weren't getting a ton of stops down the end but they got enough for james harden to take over and against new orleans they had to add in a couple extra wrinkles because anthony davis was absolutely going off and the way they did that was they treated the switching approach as a given and then they built on top of that and generally that involved aggressively doubling and against the pelicans that strategy has a lot of merit because you're forcing the other players to beat you and yes anthony davis had had a nice night and a lot of the other guys ended up doing well especially in the first half ian clark those minutes didn't totally line up with davis he was five of six in the first half drew was four of seven each one more was three out of seven so those guys were hitting some of their shots also rajon didn't play in that game which to a point helped in in certain elements for the pelicans but they were able to make it work and also i was just struck in both of these games by the way that the rockets because of their effectiveness offensively and their capability defensively how narrow the margin for error is it's just so tough because in the early part of that minnesota game when the rockets were starting to build a lead minnesota wasn't screwing up that much but they had a couple of extra turnovers they had a couple of a couple of rush shots that weren't great and if the rockets are yeah. taking more the, the field transition goals, defense the transition yeah. defense did suck in the in the in the first quarter very true when they they gave up 38 points and 77 in the first half to that mm-hmm. rocket team yeah and and the houston's gonna challenge every opponent even the best of the best in in certain ways and i appreciate that with them and the way that they've executed defensively makes it a lot harder to beat them than it used to be yeah i mean i mean again it's just avoiding mistakes making the other team beat you you're always gonna have have, if you're going against the switching defense a fair number of post-ups that aren't right at the rim a fair number of mid-rangers taken out of isolation i mean it especially works well although the wolves ended up putting up a buck 20 they got hot themselves uh but especially against spacing challenge teams the way they're able to help off people is good now there are a few warning signs you know their shot profile given up has not been that great in the last couple of months uh, so that's something to monitor i mean it's still you know jim peterson the the Wolves color analyst he was saying today he thinks that Houston is better than Golden State we'll see you know it's going to be a while before Golden State is whole again uh but yeah I think that that's really we've been saying this all year that what we believe this matchup is going to come down to is number one can Houston switching defense at least put some kind of a dent in that Warriors offense and then number number two in crunch time is James Harden going to be able to kill the way he has it and again you know again in this Minnesota game they had Derek Rose on him which we'll talk about in the Minnesota section. I don't think actually Rose did that bad of a job on Harden overall, but Tom Thibodeau does not like to switch. They did avoid your uh, trademark low resistance switches, but it didn't matter. They were able to kill him anyway. You know, they were getting Bielitsa involved in the pick and roll. They were getting Carl Towns a little bit involved in the pick and roll, uh, but mostly it was Bielitsa and Harden just killed that. I mean, the Wolves were scoring pretty well, but Houston scored on, I think, pretty much every possession in the last three, four minutes of the game, except one hardened three that rimmed out the one time they weren't able to get really a switch uh, or an open look and he just had to go to the iso and just to to put the stats out there we've tracked it at other points in the year harden is running 9.6 isolation possessions per game scoring 1.24 points per possession this is per uh, nba nba.com's differentiator chris paul 5.1 iso possessions 1.13 points per possession those are just appallingly good numbers 
Yeah, Bob Vulgaris tweeted this today that just putting four shooters around isolationists, as uh, Ben Taylor would say, uh, has taken isos from being stupid, inefficient ball to some of the best plays. Uh, and, and also, I think, true, you've got now where other teams have uh, less size uh, on the floor and just generally are not as good at, at dealing with isos as they were before. But when you don't have two traditional bigs on the floor, it's much easier to stop those plays. All right, we'll get to Golden State momentarily. But first, this from Indochino, the largest custom apparel company, period. That's it. There literally is a period at the end of that sentence in the copy. The way it works for them is they make suits and shirts to your exact measurements for an awesome fit. What I like about them, number one, the price, just $359 when you enter that familiar cap space code at checkout at Indochino.com plus free shipping but i also like that you can pick your fabric you can customize the lapels you can get single breasted if you want to look like Draymond green you can even get double breasted it go for like the 90s throwback you can go into one of their north american showrooms and get measured or they have a tutorial online to submit your measurements as well and they've gotten even faster now as they've grown three weeks or less for this thing to arrive and that's really not any slower than if you went to the department store paid double or triple the price for a suit that's not even custom and wait for them to tailor it for you in a way that again is not going to fit you as well as the indochino suit does i can't wait to get them involved in my wedding hopefully they're going to dress me dress my groomsmen in an awesome sport coat and sure every dealing that i've had with them has been great whenever i wear suits indochino suits are always the first ones that i go with once again indochino.com enter that code capspace at checkout you can get any premium suit for just 359 dollars and free shipping don't forget that capspace code let them know that you came from us who is next here the warriors are the warriors still in second place they are and they will be the, as many games as they could lose during this stretch without a couple of their star players they are i believe nine games clear of the blazers 53 and 17 yeah. four and three since the last 15 and 60 second in net rating in the nba second in offense sixth in defense projected to have 62 wins and yeah i mean the big thing that we should start with is the walking wounded kevin durant has an incomplete rib cartilage fracture i had to learn a lot about this injury uh, jeff stott's and piece on in street clothes was really useful i didn't know that coastal cartilage is what connects the vertebrae to the ribs i learned a lot if you want to learn a lot you can too clay thompson has a fracture in his thumb he's out for at least the the next game probably more than that and then curry's out too so they've had to deal with that and they lost to the kings which was you know it was surprising except that it was the second time they've lost to the kings without Durant and curry in the same game and then they beat phoenix in a comeback game and notable in that to a degree Quinn Cook they're one of their two-way players previously of Duke and the Canton Charge he set a career high an NBA career high in scoring in two consecutive days he did it 25 against Sac and then 28 against Phoenix both in exactly 40 minutes yeah Quinn Cook and Nick Young have been playing I think they both played 40 minutes on that back-to-back against uh, Sacramento and Phoenix and I had noted that Cook uh, who shot career high 30s in the G League had been under 30 percent through their win over the lakers in which he played 28 minutes last wednesday then he went five for seven in each of the last two games pushing him up to the point where they're talking about maybe he has to be in the playoff roster and i don't i actually think you know someone's gonna have to go obviously if they do that uh but i think that makes sense because 
for Cook, he's the one guy really outside of Nick Young who gives them some shooting as a backup to Curry. I think that, you know, we'll see how he keeps playing, but I think his defense is totally passable uh, at the point guard position. Uh, he can create some shots, uh, which they've needed. Um, and now if they, they have the ability to unilaterally convert him, they may run into a little bit of a hiccup as the Clippers have with Tyrone Wallace because they might want to try and get him on a longer term deal uh, that uh, is close to or at or well, it would have to be at the minimum at least to start because that's all that they can offer right now uh, but and, and the most they could offer would be two years uh, as well so maybe if they offer a little bit of a guarantee next year he, he would do that there might be a little fight there but i don't think i, I think the warriors ultimately would probably just uh, convert him and if he becomes a restricted free agent this offseason so be it uh but you know i think he provides an element that you know maybe you can argue that this is a failure in roster building for most of the year but uh that they don't really have uh on this team it's even more significant because sean livingston can't really scale up to be the curry placement his game also doesn't make sense but just you know with his injuries and his limitations you don't want livingston playing those 30 minutes a game he could do it maybe for for a game or two if curry had that so cook makes sense right right and maybe steph curry sprains an ankle and misses a couple of games in the playoffs you know that's certainly been history people remember people remember the mcl sprain in the year in 2016 he had already sprained his ankle in that rocket series earlier in the series came back from that and then slipped on demos flop on demos back sweat and sprained his mcl so that is something the warriors need to be cognizant of and they the problem with it is they have 15 guaranteed guys and so they're whoever they choose is is going to be fraud and and all that kind of stuff so that is a decision that bob myers and the front office is going to have to make the other i'll just mention this briefly if you want to read it i wrote a piece in depth on this for the athletic there is the thought that they could maybe try to get something with the hardship provision the problem with that is it requires four players being out for three games and missing more time and the timing just doesn't really going to probably work for them on that and it would be super expensive it would cost them over two hundred thousand dollars even on a 10 day so i don't expect that we'll see it but it's it's possible i guess yeah and obviously that would they would then have a a roster crunch they don't really have anything to play for they're they're really hopelessly behind houston now for the number one seed uh you know the the race between them and toronto might be an interesting one toronto losing today to okc let's uh move on here who is third in the mighty western conference gaining a much stronger foothold on it the portland trailblazers they are 44 and 26 i believe they are three games ahead of the thunder in the loss column which is pretty big when you when you get into as few games remaining as we have they are 7 and 0 since the last 15 and 60 10th in net rating 14th in offense 7th in defense projected to have 51 wins and their current 13 game win streak it capped on the cap for now with the win over the clippers is now the second longest in the illustrious history of the portland trailblazers counting single seasons only i think they've had one carried over that was long do you know when i don't actually but do you know when their longest winning streak was yeah i looked it up it was 17 games i think it was 1990-91 it was the year they won 63 yeah no that that was a year actually I mean, people forget about that blazers team that's the one that didn't make it to the finals they actually won more games than the bulls that year though i think the bulls might have had a little bit better point differential not yeah. that anyone knew to look at that back that's then on, so I, I as a yeah that's on the short list of the best teams to not make the nba finals right uh i wouldn't say it's on the short list i mean there are some great great teams that didn't make the finals you know you would have to go with that spurs team that won 67 games in 2016 you'd go go with uh the boss the 73 celtics so i think had an injury to havlicek in the eastern conference finals they won 68 and there are a few teams that, that are ahead of there um the, sorry uh, i didn't 
need oh, to get six on a pistons. We have plenty to talk about with this team. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't want me to just continue spouting facts <laughs> off the top of my head for the O six Pistons won sixty four games. Damn it! Uh, no, that that was a really good team. Uh, and I remember as as uh, a eleven year old Bulls fan thinking like, oh no, wait, because I think the Blazers actually beat the Bulls both games that year too. I think there's no way they could beat the Blazers. And being so happy that the Lakers beat them in six in the West Finals, uh, so the Bulls would have an easier matchup. But I, I think the lens I wanted to use to talk about them is their game tonight against the Clippers, whom they blew out. Uh, and we can transition into the Clippers after this, although that's a little bit out of order. Uh, having won the, the 13 straight after this, I, I thought a few things that really stuck out for me. It was tied at 44, and the Blazers won on a 10-0 run, fueled almost entirely by Mo Harkless posting up on Lou Williams. And it was kind of a throwback for Terry Stotts, if you remember when those two teams matched up in 2016, two or three times a game, you know, because that Clippers team would go with Jamal Crawford or J.J. Redick at the three and hide them on Harkless a lot. They would run a play where they'd have Harkless duck in to the charge circle. This was even not quite like that. It was more just straight post-ups for Harkless. The first one, they lobbed it into him and he got a dunk on, on Tobias Harris, who was late with the help. Then the next time, Lou Williams was fronting Harkless. Uh, I think it was Napier, faked the pass, brought Harris over to stop the same play that had just happened. And then he threw a dart to the weak side to Aminu for a three. Uh, and then they got a couple, he had another really nice move uh, along the baseline against Williams for a bucket. So they got eight straight points. And I think the other one was just a, a transition play. And basically the Blazers were in control for the entirety of the game after that 10-0 run that happened in basically four possessions as the Clippers missed a couple of three-pointers. And in a piece of good news for Mo Harkless and bad news for those of us who love the arcane nature of these things, it looks like he's going to be far enough ahead of his three-point percentage bonus that he won't be refraining from shooting at the end of the year because he's at 30, I think he's at 40% per Kevin Pelton right now, and the, the line is 35. So we're not going to get the hilarity that was Mo Harkless not taking threes for the last two weeks of the year to make sure he got that bonus, which is, I think, $500,000, yeah. which that's a lot of money. Yeah, and that will actually impact the Blazers. They, I think they do have room still below the tax, uh, even if he makes that bonus uh, this year. Yeah, it's treated as a likely one because of last year, so I would think so. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because it's already included in his number for this year um, because it, they, I have him with 444000 That might be a little bit over date, uh, out of date, but uh, that includes the 500000 because his cap number is higher this year since he made it last year. It was considered a likely bonus. Um, so, but that will, uh, again, bump it up for next year, but I, I think they'll, with him shooting that well, I mean, you remember, Danny, like he was shooting like under 30% for a lot of the year and, and his resurgence from three. And he's also been, I think, shown a little bit more versatility to his jump shot as well this year. In addition to shooting a better percentage, that's been, I think, a, a big part of this run, although he has missed time during it. Oh, I thought you were going to transition that into, well, the Port- the Blazers still had enough space to make their massive end of the season contract signing because they did. <laughs> massive, quite literally, in fact. Yeah, they got they signed Papaji, who they had previously had on a 10-day contract. And Papianis, I don't really see a place for him on the team in the immediate. They have so many bigs, but they have a lot of potential roster turnover. A bunch of guys are going to be free agents. And if they
they I mean he was he was taken in the lottery and yes there is a certain degree of of anchoring in that because that pick may have been a mistake but if they saw enough talent in him to bring him in for the rest of the year they're plenty deep in terms of a playoff rotation right now and so they signed Papa G and Wade Baldwin over the last couple days for rest of the season contracts which means as I understand it both those guys would be playoff eligible though they don't expect to use either of them in the playoffs yeah I mean certainly would take a chance of the guy he's 7-2 he could move okay he's got uh, some modicum of skill you know there's no reason like you couldn't hope he could develop into like a Boban light type of guy though he doesn't play with nearly that level of intensity obviously but you know Boban was a lot worse than Papa G probably when he was a a 19 year old though I can't say I tracked his development that closely but you know once he's just an end of the bench guy yeah keep him around you know I mean like it it was using the number 13 pick on it uh, him that was the issue to begin with a few other notes uh, from this game Uh, Yusuf Nurkic uh, I thought although he played well overall especially defensively with I think his defense has been an underrated part of their success on that end this year uh but he's been pretty thirsty I mean he's takes a lot of like floaters from the free throw line like and not even really like under control you know, he took like a one foot floater from the free throw line at one point uh he took a, sh- a shot with maybe about 18 on the shot clock with his heels on the three-point line and, and it's interesting to note that his assists per 100 possession have gone way down from 5.4 last year as a blazer to 2.9 and part of that i think is a little bit thirstier of an approach in a contract year but a lot of it too is that they're not running as much stuff through the elbows the way you know they kind of plugged him into the mason Plumley role but now that they don't have as much shooting all that elbow dho stuff doesn't work as as well and with lillard being so on fire they've just gone to more pick and roll stuff so part of it i think is his approach i mean he definitely missed some open guys on those short rolls today uh you know he had one where he could have just dumped it down to aminu for a dunk ended up missing a wild shot and aminu got the tip dunk instead there's another one where he had a guy wide open in the corner and he took another terrible floater um but i think a lot of it has been the change in role in addition to perhaps the change in approach for him the reduction in assist rate one other piece of information i want to put out there for those who have been listening to this for a while we we had a whole conversation on them in an early 15 and 60 about how surprising it was that they were doing badly on defense and and doing so and sorry doing badly on offense and doing so well on defense since january 1st they are seventh in offensive efficiency and 11th in defense and so those early season struggles we had this question about like is that the way this team is and they certainly have been better since then partially you know guys like mo Harkless doing a better job and damian lillard becoming just a fire breather has helped too of course i think the reduction in role for evan turner as well you know they've gone back to Harkless, and i mean we've seen more of pat Connaughton. turner has not played as much although i thought he he did some nice things defensively in this game and you know in 20 minutes a game turner is not going to kill you you know if he's a starter uh, he is going to kill you which you know it's kind of too bad because they brought him in to handle the ball a ton we really have not seen much of that from him every once in a while he'll get a post up or, or you know now he's just jacking corner threes and he's playing good but not uh, amazing defense um but you know I, I think they've gotten enough from uh, their other forwards uh, to look really good and during this 13 game winning streak now uh which started with the win against the warriors uh just before the all-star break uh, on valentine's day 10.6 net rating during that streak they are the eighth ranked offense and the second ranked defense during that streak and of course Dame Lillard uh, has been uh, absolutely and fuego as we talked about last time do you want to kind of jump to the Clippers considering the other notes from this game were mostly on them yeah I think it's a, a good time to do that um the Clippers now 37 and 32 uh only three and four in their last seven their 1.0 net rating is 15th in the NBA they have the eighth ranked offense an impressive impressive accomplishment and defensively however they rank 
17th only 29 percent chance at the playoffs now they're projected for 44 wins and the eighth seed right now is projected for 46 that's the the spurs oh no i'm sorry yeah projected for 46 the spurs the clippers projected for 44 nuggets all the way down at 43 now so it's actually you know with the clippers having lost the blazers I and mean, we could see this change if some of these teams just beat each other in games that they aren't expected to or somebody loses to memphis on the road <clears throat> uh, nuggets but right now the playoff odds 29 percent for the clippers 21 percent for the nuggets everyone else is 78 percent or above so we could be seeing unfortunately a little bit more stratification now than we might have those of us who wanted to see a good playoff race might have hoped well and i can explain part of the reason why and it's because the nuggets and the clippers the two teams that are now ninth and tenth in terms of record are also the teams with the hardest schedules remaining and so the difference oh, yeah. for the for the clippers is opponent difficulty so who they play they only have one more game this entire season against a bottom eight team and then every other game but one which is on the against the lakers on the last day of the season is against a team that's still competing for the playoffs so those 18 teams 10 in the west eight in the east so they're just going to have to beat teams that are trying and the hardest part of their schedule is this next week they go at minnesota and at milwaukee back to back then they fly to indianapolis for the pacers on friday and at toronto on saturday on sunday sorry sunday so that's not a back-to-back that's just tough you know all of those teams are still getting a lot of those teams are playing well right now and most of the other play teams going for the playoffs have at least some buffer in terms of these bottom feeders that they can get let's say three or four wins and then if they split the remaining games they're going to be at a better place the clippers will have to do it uh, without avery bradley uh who underwent surgery to repair uh, that adductor uh also had a tear uh, in his uh, abs as well so he's going to miss the rest of the regular season six to eight weeks uh, in recovery per uh, woge so probably the right move he just could not get healthy all season was not playing like himself uh, on the offensive end and you know now he is going to be at least be able to be healthy for what will be a critical free agent summer uh, for him and, and he is kind of shaping up a little bit to be one of these guys especially with some of the ambitions that i think he has in terms of both his contract and role to be maybe one of these one year prove it type of guys try to get back out uh, on the market again if in fact the big contract he's looking for is not forthcoming and that'd be very interesting to see whether you know he might be a guy who could be a sign in trade candidate uh, potentially uh, although obviously the clippers would have to take back some salary there uh, as well so uh, what happens with him whether there's going to be is he going to be one of those lucky few who gets an offer above the mid-level exception it, it will be very interesting i think how this clippers season plays out uh, will also be uh, of uh, some influence there uh, let's talk a little bit about uh tobias harris uh, who has played well as a clipper uh, despite uh their the team's recent swoon he has and these stats were compiled before the blazers game because that finished right before we were recording but he's averaging 21 points seven rebounds and three assists as a clipper 59 percent true shooting on 23 percent usage so you know that that's nice numbers for a guy who's a who's a starter and wants to be on a on a playoff team we'll see if they actually get there and he has a larger playmaking role on this clippers team than on detroit and i was happy that in detroit he was having the ball in his hands a little bit more at certain points in this year is at a 13.7 assist percentage right now for the season yeah so he uh is under contract probably you could argue has better numbers than blake griffin i'm not gonna say necessarily he's a better player that, than griffin but certainly has been more efficient and scoring about the same as griffin has been in detroit although certainly in markedly different ecosystems uh a few notes uh on their game against portland today i think uh, mantras harrell maybe someone that we're not talking about uh, enough i thought uh, he had some of the better minutes for the clippers uh, in this one got them 
them back into the game early in the second uh, along with Lou Williams and just his overall stats this year 65% true shooting and 24% usage I mean that is up 6% from last year he's maintained his efficiency and you wonder like how the hell is this guy have 24% usage he's supposed to just be an energy guy a dunker and one of the and he does get 24% of his field goals as dunks which is real impressive considering the guy's like 6'5 6'6 although he has a, a huge wingspan he's really good at facing up and driving a lot of times if the opponent is playing ice coverage one of the guards a lot of times Lou Williams will go baseline and then can hit Harkless or, or, or I'm sorry uh Harrell around the free throw line and Harrell can you know even though he's not shooting amazingly well for mid-range uh although Zach Collins certainly thought he was because he just jumped at him wildly and and let him drive by but Harrell has been great putting the ball on the floor getting into guys I and mean, he's almost been playing like a mini Julius Randle obviously doesn't have that level of strength but his intensity he tries to go through guys and is a very efficient finisher around the rim gets to the foul line quite a bit so you know you i think he has a reputation as being kind of a non-skilled guy but when he faces up from 15 feet he's able to get to the rim and score it's been very impressive uh for and then he'll get on the offensive glass as well 9.2 percent offensive rebounds not bad again for a guy who's undersized like him uh so he's given some very efficient scoring and his restricted free agency will be an interesting one uh, after his third season this summer we talked about it more recently in the point guard rankings but there is a batch of there a batch of centers as well that have haven't started and you kind of wonder well how much worse are they if they are than like the 25th or 20th best starter and Harold this year has been impressive I have a little bit worried about his defense if you went into that role but if the market is as tempered for all of these guys as you expect then getting him at mid-level exception money or something like that compared to what Yusuf Nurkic who played in this game wants oh to get. it won't be that much I would be shocked if it's that much the full, full mid-level exception well I was him? thinking more of the taxpayer so that's like five, oh, okay. five point five. yeah that yeah okay that seems a little more uh, a little more re- realistic but i mean I, I would be in the i would be surprised maybe if it's even that much i mean for whatever reason you know he's been a, a backup he kind of still has the idea of being undersized he's also played a lot with boban actually at mm-hmm. the four more than i think people would have anticipated coming in but they have enough scoring and shooting on that second unit to make that work uh but i mean with him being restricted the fact that they're you know i, I don't see we don't really see like restricted free agent offer sheets for like five million a year you know i mean that seems like kind of any team that's near the tax isn't going to want to wait around to use their taxpayer mid-level exception on someone like him when you don't know that you're going to get him all the other guys will be gone but by that point i think he could be kind of left out in the quote a little bit he's not going to make the starter criteria uh so his qualifying offer is going to be pretty low you know i i could see him going back to the clippers on you know like three years nine million or something like that even that'd be a shame considering how well he's played this year but some guys are victims a a lot of a lot of bigs are going to oh, yeah. get fucked in this market especially because uh and when you look at restricted free agents it's going to be really bad and especially guys who i think just because he's undersized i i doubt any team is going to look at him as a starter right so i think there, there's that aspect too where you know some of these other guys like okay he can be a starter now he's probably gonna play just as many minutes as your starting center on a lot of teams but uh you know anyway he's been a, a fantastic offensive player and and this, his qualifying year. offers uh, what, never yeah. getting rescinded so and the clippers are reasonable match so you will probably want to prioritize somebody who's more likely to actually come to your team a couple other notes on this one i actually think that milos teodosic has been a lot better defensively than i thought he would be he certainly get attacked gets attacked you know in pick and roll defense closeouts you know he's not very fast but he actually you know the biggest thing that he just didn't do at the international level uh, and in the euro league to me was even try to get over screens and because i think you know they have 
such a deep backcourt he wants to get on the floor especially another guy who can be a free agent this offseason because he's not playing as many minutes I think he actually you know he's trying at least and we haven't seen just these like total deactivations from him that we used to see you know I, I didn't watch a ton of his games overseas but certainly you know when he played for Serbia for example he was horrendous uh but you know he was the main guy there and now that he's not uh I think he's been able to compete a, a little bit better he's certainly exceeded my expectations I mean you just you know he's not doing anything great but he gets some steals every once in a while and at least you know he's not making these massive errors where you're just like all right this guy isn't even trying here at least in the games that I've watched recently and anything else in this one or are you ready to move on to the current number four seat one more quick thing uh actually two more because you know we did the research and we might as well give it to you even if it takes forever uh Lou Williams this is part of the Clippers broadcast this is year 13 this is his first 20 point per game season he's averaging 22.9 coming into tonight and it's going to go up uh because I think he had 27 tonight per the Clippers broadcast this is the latest anyone has ever had in their careers 13th year their first 20 point per game season and this is a little research that I did with with your help because you're better at basketball reference than I am uh he is extremely close to averaging the most points per game ever of any player eligible for sixth man and and when I say most points per game ever that you have to at least have qualified for the leaderboard uh and this is by the modern standards so the the qualification for the leaderboard is you have to have played 70 percent of your team's games so that's 58 games uh Ricky Pierce who played 59 games in 1989-90 which at that point was not enough to have qualified uh but would be under the current standards he averaged 23.0 points per game in 89-90 albeit in only 29 minutes lose uh, gonna average about 33 minutes this year but you know he might get especially as they get down the end here if he plays more minutes uh and he's only started like 12 games or something this year it's not very many uh that he could set the record basically of like most points per game ever for someone coming off the bench and somebody in the replies to your tweet on that said well Lou Williams is playing so many minutes and that is true and that's a consideration but I sorted it out by points per possession and it's still ninth all time using the same criteria incidentally behind Lou Williams last year he was uh that is slightly higher points per possession yeah at that point and he still could push beyond that they, they were all really close there's a Manu season in there and then at the top are a bunch of Ricky Pierce seasons yeah Pierce actually an underrated player he's I think he was a three-time all-star when he was in Milwaukee in the early 90s uh despite never playing as much as 30 minutes uh, per game uh and then last thing I want to say too and did DeAndre Jordan make a single play in this game like he, he grabbed a bunch of rebounds yeah I mean he gets his defensive rebounds that's fine you know that doesn't add a ton of value these days uh yeah, but he only took four shots yeah I mean I, I mean this is a guy who's supposed to be and, and you know he's not going to create a ton of shots obviously but you'd like to see a guy who wants at least 20 million a year it, it, you know if not a max contract I think he probably is a will have abandoned the, the hope of a max contract by now uh, although Jerry West did have a, that comment that they've offered him pretty significant money in an extension who knows how much that is but you'd imagine it starts at about the same as his current deal I mean if it if they if I were him and they offered me a three-year 60 million dollar extension like I would be think pretty seriously about taking that but nonetheless I mean because I think he's you know as a guy who's relying on athleticism he's probably the number one guy in the league but I really you know did not see him make many plays defensively uh and offensively you know they're doing things a little differently now but you know we haven't seen to me just those huge crushing lob finishes right I mean if you just go and look at like the best dunks of the season how many is he on he used to be you know a feature on that now you don't see it as much well and that's because he's in, in his late 20s he's not the athlete that he used to be okay we can make the the jump to the current number four seed the Oklahoma City Thunder 43 and 29 six and one since the last of these sixth in net rating seventh in offense 
fifth in defense, projected to have 49 wins. They have 99% chance of making the playoffs because they have separated a little bit. And because 538, as I would agree with, thinks that they're a very good team. Yeah. Where we well, should... and, and they won some games that they weren't supposed to win. Like this, right. this Toronto game today, I'm sure they were uh, not favored in. So yeah, to 49 wins, that, that looks pretty good there. It, it does. And do you want to, I'll, I'll give you the choice because I, I spent some quality time this morning watching that game. Do you want to start there? Or do you want to start with the other points that we have? Now let, let's start with, with that game, which I did not get a chance to watch. Uh, but yeah, let, let's talk about that. And then we should also talk about uh, obviously Corey Brewer, who has been, uh, you know, channeling game six and seven of the 2015 second round since he's come to the Thunder. He, he has, but the place to start with this game, unfortunately, is probably the officiating. There were a lot of ticky-tack kind of calls throughout this game, and that I, I my read was it started when Serge Ibaka need Steven Adams in the Kiwis. I think it was late in the third quarter, and the game got a little bit tighter. At that point, it was a long video review. They ended up not giving too much. It was, I guess, I think they called it natural shooting motion, and that ended up hurting the Raptors a lot more than it hurt the Thunder, and the kind of the key point in that originally was Kyle Lowry picked up. He was in foul trouble a lot of this game. He didn't play at the beginning or at the end of the third because he had gotten his fourth foul. So he came back and we one of the key pivot points in this game was that he was with the Lowry plus bench unit again because they had to sit him at the end of the third. And Oklahoma City actually outscored Toronto in that stretch. I think they were plus one or plus two when then when Westbrook and Adams came in. And then shortly after that point, Lowry, I think that was when Lowry picked up his fifth. And then he got his sixth foul, basically sticking his butt out Al Horford style on it to, to set a screen. And it was a complete foul. Like it, it was unambiguous foul. And they, they tossed it, you know, he got a sixth foul and, and was out and he was super pissed about it. And I understand why Raptors fans are, are very mad about that because Steven Adams sets a whole ton of illegal screens as do so many other big men. But, and I acknowledge that. And I acknowledge that some of Kyle Lowry's other fouls were exact. That does not change at all that Kyle Lowry's sixth foul when he, he knew he had five fouls was a completely illegal screen that was very easy to see. So then he's out. They bring in DeLon Wright. I thought DeLon Wright actually did a pretty good job. But I also don't want all of that stuff. And then DeRozan went off because he Corey Brewer, he thought Corey Brewer fouled him on a drive. And they didn't incidentally have that on the TSN feed. So I didn't get to see it. But there, apparently there's another angle where it looks worse anyway. But I don't want that to obscure from Russell Westbrook being absolutely fabulous in the fourth quarter of this game. Yeah, Russ, it's interesting because we saw the Raptors defend pretty well against the Rockets, another pick and roll team. But Russ, especially if he gets the mid-ranger working, he's just too fast sometimes to just lay back in pick and roll coverage because he can cover the ground from the three-point line to the free throw line so quickly, get the big on his heels, and then he can pull up really fast. And he's also good at feeling the guy in his back and drawing a foul call. But he's able to get that open mid-ranger. And if he's hitting that shot, uh, it's major problems. And this was one of Westbrook's most efficient games. He was plus 17, 37 points on 15 out of 22. Uh, and wasn't even dependent that much on getting the line, six out of eight. But I mean, that type of efficiency, usually when Westbrook gets into the high 30s, you know, it's going to be one of these 30 shot games for him. Uh, and 17 points in the fourth on seven of 11. Uh, and also had three offensive rebounds. That He really killed the Raptors late. And, and for the Raptors, I mean, this is the OKC section, you know, another one of these games where they have not been as effective late. You know, I think they have uh, underperformed their point differential in clutch game and another part of how oklahoma city made life hard on toronto throughout this game was that one five pick and roll and it's not only the russell westbrook component 
of it. Steven Adams setting screens, getting to the right spots, knowing how to get the space. Because I think Steven Adams had 14 points in the first quarter. They were get basically they were forcing Valanciunas into these unwinnable circumstances. And what was impressive to me was I was sitting there the whole game going, oh, well, what's going to happen when they play Serge Ibaka at the five later on? It wasn't that much better. OKC, they can still execute on those circumstances. And that's going to be a pivot point of any series they play is how well can you defend that pick and roll? Those guys are so good together. But my single favorite play of the game, and Billy Donovan singled this out afterwards, was it was huge. I think it was one minute and 30 seconds left. Paul George, he was he was a little bit too ball dominant on this play. And he was just kind of trying to figure something out and lost the ball. But it was still a live ball. And instead of sulking, instead of complaining to the refs that something had happened, he just got into DeMar DeRozan, who ended that turnover with the ball. And while he didn't force the turnover, basically he transitioned straight into Corey Brewer, who tipped the ball out. And then then George ended up getting it back and got fouled in free throws. So they did something that Toronto didn't do at all in this game, which was that when something happened that was bad, he just turned it into something positive instead of complaining about it. And that's why Donovan singled him out for it afterwards. And Paul George is a fantastic defender. And without that play, it's very possible the Thunder don't win this game. Let's talk about uh, Corey Brewer's impact now. Certainly they have played well since uh, acquiring him. But only a 3.5 net rating, not amazing. Uh, the offense has been good in part because uh, he himself is shooting 10 out of 22 from 345%. I do not expect, given his history, that to continue. Uh, opponents are actually shooting really well from three uh, in addition to OKC overall as a team. And 113 offensive rating, 109.6 defensive rating for the Thunder when he's on the floor. But actually, when he's off the floor, they've played even better. And maybe you can make the argument, in addition to the fact that he shot so well, that just simply allowing them to reduce the roles of some of their less effective wing players because he's been playing because he's been in the starting lineup has helped some when he's been off the floor but you know I I do think that one thing he really provides is helping them get out and run more uh he is you know one of the all-time leak out guys including having a 50 point game basically uh built on catching long outlets from Kevin Love and so with Russell Westbrook you know he spearheaded the most frequent transition offense in the league last year and I think they can get back to that identity a little bit more with him out there so that's where he provides value I don't think come the playoffs he's going to be an adequate option at the two but all he has to do to have been a good signing is to be more adequate than uh Alex Sabrinas or Terrence Ferguson or Josh Eustis so I, I think uh maybe it'll work out we'll see this honeymoon period could easily end but no way around it uh he has contributed since he signed and as you mentioned the ability for Donovan to kind of play the hot hand with the other guys and just pencil Brewer in. He played 31 minutes against the Clippers, scored 22 points. Also in that game, Terrence Ferguson had his second best game of the season, the best being that game against the Lakers when he went off for like 24 points or whatever. Ferguson had 12 points, three steals, and had some really nice finishes at the rim. And now, he as a, as a young rookie, Ferguson can be very inconsistent. So if he's having a good game, if Abrinas has hot shooting, then you play him. If they don't, then you go to somebody else. Houston got it. I think he got a DNP against the Clippers and then played against the Raptors. Those sorts of things can be a lot more palatable because you have this stability at the top. And as long as that starter group scores and or defends the way that they have so far, they'll be okay during the regular season. I agree with you. I'm concerned about it in the playoffs, especially to a point if they end up in the 4-5 because whoever is the other team in that 4-5 is going to be really hot because that's the only other way you can get there, especially with Portland playing as well as they are. They're probably not going to get caught. So they'll be playing a really good team but they can they have the talent i mean 
you have Russell Westbrook, Paul George, Stephen Adams, and depending on what they get from Mello, Mello, you'll be in a series against almost anybody. Well, let's move on to the fifth place team in the Western Conference. They have won 19 out of 21 games, 7-0 and since the last 15 and 60. The 40 and 30 Utah Jazz have the fifth best net rating, 3.3, in the entire NBA, 18th in offense and second in defense. Although, of course, uh, since Rudy Gobert has returned, they've been playing an otherworldly level. Uh, Liam compiled a lot of these stats and his note was, we should just spend two hours on them. And uh, <laughs> I'm sorry that we can't do that. Maybe, maybe uh, I should get in touch with David Locke and see if he wants to come on a, a, and talk jazz more specifically here because this has been an unbelievable run for them. It has been. And it's been a mix. Certainly some of the games have been them taking care of business either from the beginning or eventually. I mean, that game against Sacramento was close, but Sacramento has been feisty the whole time and the Jazz still came out with the win, which Miami was not able to do against Sacramento or the Warriors a couple days before. So they've been fabulous. Another important development for the long term is that they have been incorporating Dante Exum. He returned a couple games ago and they have struggled to score during Exum's minutes, just a 67 offensive rating. I expect that to balance a little bit. He got to the line in that first game I saw him play a little bit. He looks like he's getting getting there moving and with Howell Neto being out with that wrist fracture, they have a little bit of a place for Exum. But the bigger story here, I think what we'll spend the lion's share of this time talking about is our our longtime friend. And it's weird that I think there are people that have jumped us in terms of praising Rudy Gobert because we were on the Gobert train before anybody outside of Salt Lake City. But he has been absolutely fantastic this year. Yeah, I mean, you're the one who was saying he should be a top five pick in 2013. I felt that way in 2012. He was one of the guys that I wrote about that night as being the steal of the draft, although full disclosure, I also thought Trey Burke was a steal of the draft. That oh, year. I hated I Trey Burke. Uh, good for you. Yeah, uh, I've been wrong on a lot. <laughs> well, you you loved Giannis that year, and I was down on Giannis. So, uh, in in fairness, I, the, my first year of like really going through the top ten in a ton of of detail was 2014. Not that my record is really any better than a lot of teams in the NBA as a whole, but uh, we all have our hits and misses, uh, of course. But anyway, back to Gobert, uh, David. His tweets ironically we had just done our top 10 players in the nba but uh david thinks that he should be a top 10 player and most of that of course is based on his defense although i think as an offensive center you can argue he's in the top half of the league as a dunker and an offensive rebounder and uh you know avoiding turnovers setting screens he does an excellent job of as well uh but Without Gobert, 107.9 defensive rating. With Gobert, 98.2. That's anything under 100 is basically unheard of in today's NBA. That's over 1,414 minutes. Uh, For reference, the number one defense in the NBA right now is per cleaning the glass. Uh, So it'll be a little higher numbers than on NBA.com because cleaning the glass uses a much closer approximation of actual possession counts. Is 103.1. So basically five points per 100 possessions lower than the best defense in the NBA when Gobert has been on the floor uh and as a team the Jazz 98.4 defensive rating since Gobert's return on January 18th which coincidentally was the start of this preposterous run that they have been on essentially one of the hallmarks that I look for in a a center and incidentally these are also parts of the argument in favor of Joel Embiid winning defense by the year these guys have similar parts of their profile defensively are similar is the deterrence of shots in the restricted area and then the ideally affecting the 
per, the success rate of those shots as well. So this year, Gobert, opponents are taking 27% of their shots in the restricted area when he's on the floor, 32% when he's off, and also they're more effective there when he's off the floor, 63.6 off, 60.8 on. So they're taking fewer shots at the rim, they're making less of them too, and that is not an aberration. The exact same split, broadly speaking, was true last year, both in ter- the, like the duality of fewer shots and making fewer of them was true last year as well. And that generally corresponds with more floaters and floaters are way worse shots than at the rim. Yeah. And also concomitant with that is the fact that they foul less when he is in the game because you're not getting to the rim as much. You're not, the defense is not placed in compromising positions where they need to foul as often. So, and Locke's argument has been, Hey, you know what? Like look at how much Gobert impacts the jazz defensive rating. That's much greater uh, of a departure from average on defense than the best offensive players cause their offenses to be on offense and it is an interesting point because generally the spread of offenses is greater than the spread of defenses right it's harder to just make a good defense all the time uh than it is to to make a a good offense usually the best offenses depart more from the league average than the best defenses do but that has not been the case with gobert uh but to me number one you know gobert has played what seven playoff games you know i think that if you're talking about a top 10 player you probably need to have at least some kind of a resume in the playoffs i think he's been effective he obviously was injured last year but i want to see if that works i mean because when remember our criteria for top 10 was you're trying to win a championship that season you know and i think in the regular season uh those arguments become a lot better but how effective can he be defensively in the playoffs against teams that just have so much shooting that you basically can't hang back in the paint you know i think he's we've talked about this a lot with paint bound big men that they are much more effective against probably 26 27 of the teams in the nba you know if you've got a guard dame lillard if you've got a guard steph curry if you've got a guard kevin durant in pick and roll if you've got a guard james harden and the rockets in pick and roll how effective is he going to be able to be in those situations where you know he has to get out of his comfort zone a little bit more than uh he has to against most regular season teams so that's the biggest part of my argument and then just generally also i think offense is more important than defense and i think it's a lot easier to find a reasonable facsimile of a rudy gobert and you know obviously gobert is incredible like i'm not minimizing what he does but if you want to just find someone who can block shots for someone who can score at the highest level you're not going to be able to find that uh as easily uh, on the offensive side of the ball the only other point i'll add to that is i personally believe and i will probably do some digging over the summer i am open to counter arguments on this that an individual conceptually can make a larger impact offensively like these superlative guys than an individual defensively just because of the way the seams can go and part of that is is probably sample bias with my own life covering the league because I've seen you know the Warriors with and without Steph Curry one of the superlative offensive talents of of the modern times and you know we saw the Warriors in that 11 game gap when when Curry didn't play even though they have three all-stars they weren't able to generate reliable offense in the same way and yes there has been that disparity with the Jazz this year and we should note that the Jazz generally their backup center has been Ekpeuda who is more capable than a lot of backup centers defensively but that's just the way I feel is that he is 
huge and significant in that way. But unless you're going to do a whole scheme of funneling stuff to to a center and a lot of the other elements of it, I just don't see it. I see defense as more of a collaborative thing than offense in terms of the talents that you need on every team. Now, if I mean, that's a lot to ask for the Jazz. I think, you know, maybe if they get to the four seed, they could be favored in the first round. You know, I think it's pretty unlikely uh, that they would be favored in the first round. But if they can pull another upset, if they do it on the back of unbelievable defense led by Rudy Gobert, you know, maybe my uh, opinion will change. I mean, now, if they do it against the Spurs or something, you know, the Spurs uh, play right into their hands in terms of their offense. But, you know, if they really go against an elite off, you know, I'd love to see him match up against Carl Anthony Towns in the first round like that would be awesome if that came to be the match and to see whether he could guard deal with guarding talents one-on-one you know but he's had pretty good success against anthony davis so you know i don't mean to minimize the effect that he can have i just need to see more of it from him at the absolute highest levels to start really talking about him as being you know as good as someone like a even like a jimmy butler for example uh guys who are the primary offensive engine are pretty close to it uh, on really good team one other quick note i want to say on gobert is that it's also seems hard to scale him up offensively he is very good at what he does but it doesn't feel to me like there's some massive untapped potential for a guy who's shooting 70 percent at the rim good at good at getting to the free throw line makes about 70 percent when he's there so i don't think he's being hurt too much by circumstances on that end of like oh man he if you, you could make him like a a 25 percent usage guy or anything like that he he's fine on that end it certainly doesn't detract from his argument but there you know that scalability he's a he's a star on one end and he's a contributor on the other all right before before we move on to the current number six seed we've been talking a lot uh, about the nba playoffs and the best way to actually get a ticket to go see the nba playoffs in person is SeatGeek, the smartest easiest way to get tickets for every type of live event not just the nba if you want a last minute deal you're playing a night out if you're getting gifts certainly i think uh we're moving to a more experiential society i think that uh, doing something is a much better gift than stuff and SeatGeek is a great way to do that and of course if you haven't used SeatGeek before you can get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase with that familiar cap space code the SeatGeek app will save you time and it'll save you money saves you time because their algorithms rank every ticket based on value and they aggregate ticket buying sites together so it's all in one place and you can find the seats that you want quickly and easily because in my experience you, you can trust their rankings of value I've gotten some great deals before uh, on SeatGeek and you can do the same by downloading that SeatGeek app and entering promo code CAPSPACE today to get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. And of course, let them know that you came from us. Who is even number six right now? Well, so there's a three-way tie for five, six, and seven with the Jazz, the Spurs, and our number six team. Wait, is that five, six, seven? Whatever whatever those spots are. And the New Orleans Pelicans. Yeah, it's five, six, seven. And the New Orleans Pelicans. So the Pelicans are 40 and 30. Did we ever do the fundamentals for the Jazz? I think we did. Anyway, 40 and 30, 13th yeah. in net rating, 11th in offense, 13th in defense projected by 538 to have 46 wins and an 83 percent chance of making the playoffs we should start this with uh some solemn news tom benson their longtime owner not that long time but he passed away on thursday he is generally credited with being responsible for keeping not only nba basketball but also the nfl in new orleans he bought the saints in 85 and purchased the pelicans well then the hornets in 2012 for reported 338 million which was 20 million more than the league had paid george shin in 2010 and it looks like there's going to be a peaceful transition of power to his wife but that's always worth watching whenever these sorts of things happen to see if anything changes in terms of the way the organization is run but it's 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 unfortunate he is certainly important to that community
community. And when we did our ownership rankings, one of the important things it was, you know, that you're being a fan of that fan base, ideally in that city. And he kept basketball in New Orleans. Yeah, and you'll recall there was some drama among his family where uh, his children had, this is summarizing it, but had been supposed to take over the teams and his business empire. Instead, uh, his wife became designated for that. And uh, she won uh, an action which was based in large part on Benson's supposed incompetency. So it sounds like she's going to be in control whether she retains the team or not, whether any changes are made or not. Difficult to say, but you'd have to imagine if you're just guessing that this would mean it's more likely that the status quo continues. Though remember Alvin Gentry, uh, I believe his contract expires at the end of this year. Del Demps uh, perpetually, you never know what's going to happen with him, but hard to imagine that major changes will be made, you know, only a month or two uh, after her husband's death. Um, other injury news, Frank Jackson, who was drafted very early in the second round by the Pels, will not play this season. He had two surgeries on his right foot uh, and still has not been able to return since August uh, of 2017 when he had the second of those. Not sure whether a setbacker is involved there. Not sure whether simply the fact that, you know, he's not going to play for them anyway. They don't have a G League team. There's no reason to try bringing him back at, at this point, but hopefully he'll return for the summer. I mean, is there, was there any discussion, Danny, of like a specific setback or it's just he's not healed yet or what's the story? I didn't see anything particular on that. I would be interested if anybody has information in terms of timing. I mean, Frank, talented player at Duke, I believe he went 31st. So that's as high as you can go in, in the yeah, second round. Right. And I'd like to see what he can do. I saw, we saw him at Hoop Summit in 2017, I believe, and he looked athletic, but still had to figure out some of the point guardy stuff. But in positive injury news for the, the Pelicans on Sunday, Solomon Hill returned and he came off the bench after that hamstring tear that has kept him out for the entire season. And he, he looked pretty good physically. I didn't, I didn't see anything that really concerned me, which is really what you're looking for in this kind of a game. And that's going to be important because the Pelicans are in the middle of this absolutely insane stretch. And it part of it is just bad luck because it was going to be hard anyway. But what happened is they had that weird game that had to be postponed because of a leak in the roof of the Smoothie King Center. So instead of having four home games in six days, the first two of which just happened, they now have five in six days because they had a home back to back with Houston and Boston. Then they have now starting on Tuesday, a home back to back to back Dallas, Indiana and the Lakers. I watched their game today against the Celtics where Kyrie Irving did not play. Jalen Braun is still out as well. The Celtics uh, definitely struggled with some of their bench units in particular, but Anthony Davis was absolutely dominant in the 19 point win for the Pels. 34 points on 14 of 24. And I really liked his approach where against guys like Marcus Morris, Semi Ojale, guys that he has a height advantage on and athleticism advantage on, he didn't try when he got those guys on switches to just go through them in the post and back down and let them disrupt his shot with the body. What he would do, in fact, is take an escape dribble a lot of times just at a right angle to the rim, create the space, and then just knowing that he's got the length and leaping ability advantage, just rise up for a turnaround jumper that they couldn't really bother. I really, I thought that was a good approach for a guy who's a little bit thinner than the people who are guarding you. And, you know, a lot of times coaches will be like, oh, you know, you've got the advantage, like go for a power move. And it's like, well, you're playing right into like that shorter squatter guy's hands. When you do that, his advantage is his length and his touch and his leaping ability. So get separation, get the guy's body off of you so you can jump to your full height and then just shoot right over him and don't worry about the contest from 14 feet. And 
and he was uh, successful with that approach. I was going to ask you, because where he gets the ball is different, but part of it kind of reminded me of Kevin Durant, the way that Durant uses his size in that sort of an area. Durant does too much settling when he dribbles in for mid-range, but it kind of seemed like something he would do. Yeah, it was a little bit different because he was catching the ball in the post with the live dribble, a little better better position than KD usually gets. You know, a lot of these are off switches and AD's got a little bit more strength than, than KD does. And, you know, so it wasn't necessarily like KD was a, a turn and face dribble. It was more just back to goal, one hard dribble away. But it's a similar concept where, you know, if you can get the separation, get the guy's body off of you, then you can elevate it and hit the shot. And obviously his touch uh, has evolved to be one of the better shooting big men in the NBA. And just as a little bit of context, when we get into this game, the day before, because they had this back-to-back, Alvin Gentry went off on the refs after the game because he thought there was an officiating imbalance. Houston had 18 free throw attempts and versus 12 for the Pelicans, but it was 14 to six in the second half. And I think what the big point that Gentry was getting at, and we saw some of that, in the Boston game was just AD can be hard to officiate. And we've seen this with big men going back to Shaq or far, far earlier than that, that dominant, physically dominant in AD in a different way, albeit big men oftentimes get shortchanged by officials. It's just, they get hacked all the time and it doesn't get called. And so I understand Gentry, he only got fined 15 grand. And I I think he kind of got his money worth money's worth to a point. But the idea that AD is not going to get the whistles he should is to a certain degree, just a fact of life for the Pelicans. Scalabrini, I was watching the Boston broadcast and he said oh Al- alvin really got his fifteen thousand worth like now they're making these calls for ad you know he ended up six out of eight free throws which is probably fewer than he w- would normally attempt in a lot of games but i, I didn't really care for that opinion I'm just like oh see you look like because they made this one call that uh i don't agree with that means that it's worth i mean you just again I- i've said this many times fans broadcasters players coaches unless you have data from the entirety of the season showing that your guy has bad calls against him more so than other players this idea that there's something intentional that you're getting into the, the refs heads that there's all this gamesmanship that certain players just get screwed over i mean it doesn't matter who you talk to in the league every single executive every single coach if you ask them would think that their team's not getting a fair shake from the refs. well somebody's got to be getting a fair shake yeah <laughs> the, the only guy who gets the shake. only guy who gets to do this beef right now is Spencer Dinwiddie. Dinwiddie can talk all the crap he wants. Yeah, and, and even that, I mean, I, I know like the NBA ref Twitter account and then the NBA official, which is like the league officiating account, had like a little spat back and forth about how the league office doesn't do enough training. And then the league office is like, oh no, we actually do do enough training. It was a pretty, pretty good Twitter spat. Uh, but, and even that Dinwiddie one, you know, the sample size is small enough that I'm not even sure you can conclude anything there. I mean, right. it is in clutch games. You know, that was compiled off the basis of last two minute reports and you know you at least you can make the argument yeah you know missed calls have cost us but then if you want to make the leap from there to you know there's something intentional there's something yeah. sinister I was there's something good. that like you know just or, or just some sort of systematic flaw that's biased against us so over the course of an entire game an entire season you know uh, all right i mean i'm not saying that it's impossible but oh man like like the play that scalabrini was complaining about was uh al horford was like trying to d- deny a pass into ad and and, you know, kind of had his hand on his back and, and uh, ended up deflecting the ball out of bounds and they called a foul on it. Scalabrini's like, oh, they could have just let that go. And it's just like, yeah, man, that one call doesn't prove shit. Like, let's let's stop. Like, if you're going to make these very serious accusations, like, you better come with more data than that. You know, ironically, I would say that Mark Cuban is the 
one that I trust the most on this because at least we know that he's like actually done studies on this stuff but it's just the idea that you any of us humans can visually determine over the course of an entire season you know I can watch a game and be like okay I don't agree with that call I don't agree with that call I don't agree with that call you know I think they missed that one but once you take it beyond there that's just going too far in my opinion for a lot of people to, to impugn the efforts of a lot of people who are trying to do their job the best they can let's go from that to Sheikh Diallo who I was very impressed with in the Houston game and then put up put together on the second night of a back-to-back 17 points seven to nine from the field six rebounds in 24 minutes yeah Diallo uh really ran the floor against Boston got some nice dunks uh in the second half um he in summer league has taken some mid-rangers that I didn't really care for trying to expand his game I, mean, I shouldn't say I don't care for him but not a shot maybe you want him taking the NBA but he's largely eschewed anything outside of 15 feet now and he shoots 72 percent of the room he provides some effort against a Boston team that didn't have a ton of spacing today he was a pretty good option uh so a guy to keep an eye on uh Ian Clark has actually been playing in crunch time a, a fair amount but has had a disappointing season shooting the ball you know he was never a guy uh, even uh, as someone with some other limitations you know if you compare him to like a Bryn Forbes or someone you know I don't think he's type that level of shooter especially because that has that low release not a ton of versatility to a shot although he's worked on that uh, to some degree he's taken more two-pointers recently but he's shooting only 30.1 percent from downtown and while teams do guard him he still has that rep with the Warriors he hasn't been shooting it well and then Miritich is only at 31 percent as a Pell also so those guys hitting some shots I think it could help a lot uh on the other hand Darius Miller continues just shooting lights out uh, from the three position uh and then you mentioned Hill he played I believe all of his minutes today at the three which you know is not his best position that's why you know that signing would have been a lot better if he was a four but you know there aren't that many threes uh so the thought was maybe you know I don't know if we'll see him play together with Miritich uh but it looks like you know they're probably going to try and funnel him into the three and I think their defense will get better if they do that but and, and maybe with Miritich around they'll have enough spacing even though as we mentioned Miritich has not shot the ball particularly well anything else you want to talk about with them no I mean we've been recording for about uh 95 minutes here and we're not even halfway through so we could probably move on I would say so let's move on to the team that finishes out that three-way tie the San Antonio Spurs who are 40 and 30 like the other ones four and three since the last 15 and 60 seventh in net rating plus 2.8 17th in offense a still remarkable third in defense 46 projected wins 78 percent playoff odds and I'll let you start the talking here because it's about something I'm not talking about <laughs> yeah Kawhi was maybe supposed to come back just a little bit of an additional uh, on Thursday did not uh Mike Wright saying that uh when Kawhi was in New York consulting with those specialists uh those are the folks that are supposed to clear him uh and Jeff McDonald had a tweet noting that the tendinopathy is more like a disease than a, an injury which I think is an interesting way to look at it so that's your uh your weekly crisis uh update the Minnesota game I, I thought was interesting they went with Kyle Anderson at the four to start he played poorly uh, and was negative 14 but uh they basically only played two traditional bigs uh, Gasol and Aldridge Bertans and uh your boy King Joffrey did not play until the very end of the game uh one minute in garbage time uh they played Gasol and Aldridge together uh, about 12 minutes and they also started both Patty Mills and Danny Green and the offense just looked a, a lot better the lineup of Parker Mills Danny Green Rudy Gay and LaMarcus they broke it open with a 14 to 3 run 
in the fourth that might be their best lineup uh, that they can throw out there when of course Kawhi is not healthy maybe you could say Manu could play for Parker instead but it's they at least have enough shooting and LaMarcus went absolutely crazy to the tune of 39 points um I think helped in part by the fact that he was playing center and overall lineups with LaMarcus at center which I defined as no Pau and no Jaffrey Laverne on the floor 7.7 net rating on the season and uh but part of that even could be hey you know what he's better at center part of it could just be well you know what you're getting Jaffrey Laverne off the floor he is a negative 5.6 net rating in 499 minutes which I think is like five points per 100 worse than any other spur at this point uh so can I if he picks up a player option at the minimum can I declare victory on this is that is that what the line is what? oh that that it was like that I that was, it was right? a bad signing yeah I mean you could have declared victory like the moment uh ink was brought to paper no 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 because it was this <laughs> whole thing for me about like Popovich deserving the benefit of the doubt considering the repertoire but I was like Joffrey Laverne isn't good and I, I stand by that but let's move on we don't need to talk we can save that we have a whole offseason to talk about that something that I find yeah, yeah, I find yeah. interesting entire podcast will be devoted to this subject oh god uh <laughs> so Rudy Gay this year has been playing so he 24% usage but his the distribution and it gets sometimes it gets nebulous with the Spurs with all the forwards they have but the way that clean, clean the glass has it separated he has played 32% of his minutes at small forward 66% at power forward and 3% at center and unsurprisingly when you think about the distribution this gets into the point you made earlier about that gay and Lamarcus at the four and the five lineup they've been significantly better with him at power forward about a plus five net rating than they have with him at small forward negative 8.6 and personally i think of that more as a personnel based discrepancy rather than anything else because they just have so much more offensive capability yeah and they don't really have that many other threes either so you know i guess that would probably be danny green i'm not sure whether they're defining kyle anderson or gay as the power forward when those guys play together but presumably i I would consider anderson the power forward in in that alignment uh due to gay's superior shooting uh so you probably got danny green playing a lot of the time uh at the three maybe a little bit of manu in those lines and I thought it'd be interesting to compare how Gay is getting his shots this year compared to last season in Sacramento which of course was cut short about halfway through uh, with that torn Achilles the biggest difference uh, for him is 14.6 percent of the time last season as a pick and roll ball handler that has basically been excised from his game uh, only 7.6 percent of the time now this season as the pick and roll ball handler and they're using him actually more as a role man really playing him more uh, as a, a four it seems like and in pick and roll i mean he's really you know you're just gonna probably just switch it when it's rudy gay and he was used more as a traditional three in sacramento was not efficient as a pick and roll ball handler last year it is not at all this year either uh transition is down this year uh, sacramento just ran more as a team than the spurs do and still about the same percentage for him actually even higher about 23 percent of his offense last year was via either isolation or post up that is now in increased to 27 percent of his offense overall and he's been uh, much more efficient out of those plays this year as a spur slightly better spacing so, around him yeah slightly <laughs> like only slightly though i mean i'm actually I, I actually you might have been joking there but i'm not like especially with this some of the lineups that the spurs uh, throw out there well i mean um, they have better they have better spacing yeah, I mean, from the forward spots at the bare minimum i mean because sacramento plays yeah. a lot of bigs who can't shoot yeah i mean but they had like tolliver on the team last year like 
they're That's they true. actually probably had a little more spacing last year than they do the, this year i mean demarcus was playing a lot obviously oh that's true I, w- I was thinking um, more of those lineups at the end of the year with collie stein and kufos and all that kind of stuff oh yeah yeah well but he was uh, hurt obviously gay was out there but yeah i mean and it was interesting though just looking at, at the kings like to go back to synergy like if someone's not on the team anymore like basically the entire drop down menu was not with team anymore uh from last year for the kings they've had actually a lot more turnover than i, I think people remember uh but anyway yeah i just thought it was interesting that you know and again more confirmation that the spurs kind of ground and pound iso ball a lot of that kind of stuff and, and gay's numbers reflect that uh where are we going next year minnesota yeah the minnesota timberwolves one of the disparities that we have between their current record because right now they would be the eight seed and the projections which 538 puts them at 47 wins which is only one win more but jumps them significantly so they're 40 and 31 so one win sorry one loss behind two and three since the last 15 and 60 after their loss to the rockets today ninth in net rating fourth in offense 25th in defense 94 percent chance of making the playoffs per 538 and as i said 47 projected wins though it's it's right on the border for them yeah we can start with a, a report that we alluded to last week from darren wolfson uh noting that wiggins has whispered to teammates that he's unhappy being a third option behind towns and butler you and i and many others have joked that he should probably be fourth uh but it is incumbent upon us to relay the response to that uh via jerry zagoda uh tom thibodeau called the the claim and its sourcing total nonsense and said quote i know andrew's character there's no way in the world andrew is saying any of that particularly from a guy who's taken the most shots on our team (laughs) and when asked about it wiggins said it's just someone's word of mouth it wasn't no quote from me everyone that knows me knows i don't talk much i just go with the flow i don't whisper if i say something i'm going to say it clearly and loudly uh so uh, about as vehement a denial as you can get there and uh third option or no it is true that he's leading the team in shot attempts uh, although probably not getting the ball as much at the end of games when butler and towns were healthy and towns uh, has been outstanding since butler went down but i still think he needs to get the ball even more uh than he has uh he's still only 29th in the nba in field goal attempts per game and he still has a lower usage uh, than wiggins uh during this stretch he has a lower usage than Derek rose too but that's a much smaller sample and all that kind of stuff but to go through yeah 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 we but but quick quick numbers on towns yeah. here since butler went down or i'm sorry in march i should say 58 percent from the field not getting up many threes only 2.3 per game but he's hitting a preposterous 64 percent of those 84 percent from the foul line as well and averaging 26 points per game in march which is now seven games old uh but he had you know obviously that unbelievable game at, at washington but still you know, he's only had one game with uh, over 20 field goal attempts that was that golden state game where he put up at 24 and uh like i said i'd like to see him get the ball more though the offense is not their problem right now with butler out and you know wasn't hasn't been their problem all season yeah because they have a, a 114 offensive rating when towns is on the floor since butler has not been there and they you know they've been using a lot of different players as the starter replacement bielitsa i think has done a nice job overall it's been good to see him with the ball in his hands a little bit more and one of the just the storylines i mean we covered the first game that that he did on the twitter nba show and yes derrick rose was better today you know he was a part of that comeback in in the game against the rockets rockets were like 16 17 i think they got it all the way down to five or six but his stats so far derrick roses as a member of the minnesota timberwolves 13 minutes a game six points 1.8 assists 43 percent true shooting 
on 27% usage and brace yourselves negative 34.6 net rating including today's game yeah and today's game he actually had it working uh, I think he finished five of nine got out in transition a couple times even at a dunk uh, where he cut in he was playing with Jeff T down the end interestingly enough he was actually guarding James Harden and I thought he was like semi-decent you know he was at least trying to direct the ball trying to get over screens you know, they're playing conventional pick and roll defense with the hedging usually involving Bielitsa guarding the screeners man um it didn't work you know and, and there was one play where he went under on Harden and Harden I mean you know the guy hit a really tough shot I mean for a left-handed player going to his left pull up three and it's not like Rose didn't contest it at all I mean that's just a really difficult shot that you probably need to live with if you're going to play conventional pick and roll defense against James Harden as they did um still I mean Rose's had like you know he had like a negative whatever it was like 17 and seven minutes against the Warriors then I think he was like negative 20 in that Spurs game uh, on Saturday so it's uh he had one good game uh I'm not sure that I still would have had him in the game at, at the end as, despite that but he's probably gonna play more now after having this one good game you know that Tibbs having signed him is going to be looking for reasons to play him and uh you know that's uh all the fewer shots for Carl Anthony Towns I guess and it's also frustrating for me to have him in the closing lineup because Bielitsa has played well I, I think that Bielitsa he this wasn't his best game though he was Bielitsa was six for ten from the field but I just think the versatility yeah. added there and Rose since he does so little off ball because he can't shoot there aren't those spillover benefits which there are with Bielitsa because you have to put somebody on or close to him in the same kind of way so yeah I mean and it looks like well do, I have a transition here but I but I don't want to do it until you have enough until you until if we've gone through everything you want to go through no I think that's uh all I had what he got okay so Minnesota's schedule part of the reason it, it it is challenging I mean they still play still play a bunch of teams that are still trying but what could be a massive swing point for them is the fact that they play two games in April against the team that is producing probably the most size from the two of us over the last couple weeks the Denver Nuggets and they are our next team and why that matters is because Denver I don't think they're going to be out of it by early April but there is a chance and those two games become a lot more palatable and the basically the end of their Minnesota season becomes a lot more palatable if Denver's not trying at that point I think they'll be trying I think because so, yeah. I mean maybe you might see like Wilson Chandler sit because he's been struggling with his hip and back but back wow man the Chicago accent's been coming out especially when you record oh you just talked talk about Derrick Rose so it comes comes to talk about Chicago guys <laughs> uh yeah so the Nuggets just an execrable loss to the Memphis Grizzlies uh, on Saturday just absolutely miserable how was it that they managed to lose for me it all stems back to that first quarter I only saw part of it at the time but it was just jarring because Denver was up 34 to 17 at the end of the first and there were a mix of different things I mean Memphis Memf- Memphis was up 34 sorry yeah Memphis was up 34 to 50 that's why it was jarring so Memphis had as many blocks five as Denver had made baskets they were five of 20 Denver was five of 23 from the field one for seven on above the break threes where Memphis not necessarily the greatest three-point shooting team in the world was five of seven so there was certainly a degree of three-point luck or whatever that Jamal Jamal Murray didn't have his best shooting game so that's where you start with the story is that there was this massive difference 17 point doubling up in the in the first quarter but then down the stretch you had some of those mistakes that have been concerning me last year that was last year right the cottage industry of Denver blowing games late and from 247 when I think that Millsap hit a jump shot 
shot. And then at 33 seconds, I can't remember who shot it then. So that's a span of a minute and 14 seconds in crunch time. Denver only got one shot up and that one shot up was kind of generously counted as a shot. Will Barton was going up and as he was going up, Jarrell Martin basically just took the ball from him and you could have easily counted that as a steal and I would have been fine with it. And they had two turnovers. They had, it was a whole bunch of just ridiculousness with that. Oh, it wasn't a steal because the ball went out of bounds and then they got a shot clock violation two seconds later. That's why it wasn't a steal. And they, and Memphis basically ran the clock down. They got a couple of threes, one, neither of which went in. And just the idea of going that long without even getting a shot up when it's a two possession game for most of that time is just catastrophic. I will say the last Denver game that, that we did, we were critical of Paul Millsap not playing enough. He was actually negative 12 in his 30 minutes. And that one, much of that, of course, in that disastrous first quarter that you mentioned. And I think you said it was 114. It was actually 214 that they only took the one shot. At, and uh, yeah, you're right. Barton got got blocked. Uh, and I think that goes back to something that we've talked about with this team. I think it was when we talked about their game against the Lakers is just, uh, and maybe this goes back to Nikola Jokic to some degree as well. Who had, uh, although he was only negative one in this game, but you know, 17 points, five out of 15 for him to assist and just that there's a lot of inconsistency with this group maybe because some of their best players are young you can say that although i'm not aware of any actual evidence to show that young players are more inconsistent but just that it's it's so many cooks in the kitchen that they end up a lot of times it seems like not knowing what they want to do not having the greatest plan at the end of games and not having that one guy who can really bail them out when they're having trouble both in possessions and in games to create just you know jamal murray was one out of eight from three five out of 18 from the field will barton who's had a lot of struggle fest lately was only three out of 12 they had a lot of guys who just didn't shoot the ball well but again i think there's i don't know whether it's their style i don't know whether it's the lack of a dominant player but it certainly seems like this team you know most of these teams it's like they go into memphis and it's like all right they're gonna win and the nuggets i think alone on this group of 10 when healthy they can lose any game now they can win every game especially at home they've been so bad on the road this year but the level of inconsistency I, i'm maybe i'm grasping at straws and these aren't realistic explanations for why it is that they seem to lose a lot of these games but you know they definitely seem like the team you can trust the least uh which is why i probably shouldn't have picked them to be as high as i did uh, before the season but you know i, th- I thought Millsap and, and grant i didn't know Millsap was going to miss as much time as he did i thought he could kind of steady them a little bit and that is not pretty good and there is this disparity between the struggles they've had now and the overall picture when Millsap has played he's missed a bunch of time they've and some stats i pulled on that even before the grizzlies game was that they for the season it's hard because there's been some turnover but in minutes that Jokic and jamal murray have played when they played with Millsap, the nuggets have a have an 11.6 net rating which is fantastic and a lot of that is fueled by a 104 defense the offense offensive rating is actually very similar to what it was with Jokic on the floor after they traded yusuf nurkic last year so that's similar and the defense is better so they've been good in that and then in the minutes without Millsap, which is a lot more because of his injury that's over a thousand they're a plus 1.6 which is you know it's fine but it's not great and in this strong of a western playoff picture that's probably not enough but since Millsap has come back they're five and five uh 13th in net rating third in offense 22nd in defense and not all of the that damage was done when Millsap was on or off the floor it's a mix of everything but in that stretch he hasn't been the stabilizer and that's a problem a couple other notes there uh our buddy adam maris noting that the nuggets have lost to all six of the non-playoff teams in the west since january 
26th that's bad considering uh the lakers are the only one of those teams that's actually trying uh, right now and then uh, also noteworthy uh, and this is maybe you can point this to some of their shooting struggles uh, against memphis they were missing gary harris who uh, is their leading scorer although it doesn't get as much attention as some of these other guys uh he starting saturday will be out at least three or four games with a, a sprained right knee they've been quite nebulous on the exact diagnosis there so certainly worrisome and maybe maybe that could be one of those ones where if they really are out of it you know they don't bring him back as you're talking about with minnesota uh but let's move on here we did the clippers already so now uh who's next the lakers yeah the lakers are next they are now 31 and 38 they are three and four since the last 15 and 60 20th in net rating 21st in offense 11th in defense and they're projected to have 37 wins i would anticipate given their incentives that they will probably finish with the and this matters more to the sixers than to them that they will end up with the 12th best lottery odds because they will finish ahead of both of the east teams and then will finish behind the two west teams that miss out on the playoffs brandon ingram has continued to miss time with that adductor some talk that he could return thursday against new orleans i saw him shoot around before the game very lightly you know no real jumping just some like one two kind of set shots uh so it didn't appear to be close when i saw him uh, on wednesday and indeed he, he has not played maybe he'll come back but uh there is no reason to push it uh for him coming back although uh maybe the lakers need to be told that they are not actually still in a playoff chase yeah i mean so we talked about it a little bit on dunked on this past week kuzma had that huge game came back against the nuggets and was huge in, in the fourth quarter i'm sure denver is mad, is mad about that for plenty reasons and then he yeah. sprained his ankle Sp- at the end of the third his quarter. ankle during the game and returned and yeah. returned yeah. Yeah, and then sorry. was big in the fourth quarter then he missed their next two games and then he played 33 minutes in the loss to Miami so first game back from a sprained ankle just goes into a lot of minutes and that is becoming sadly part of the norm Lonzo Ball has played 37 or more minutes in five of their last six games the only one he didn't was that blow blowout win which ended up getting a little bit closer against Cleveland where I think that, that they realized the game was settled and so he was I think in the like low 30s in that game yeah and probably not a, a great idea to push it I mean when I saw a lot so you know he still he wears tights but he still has a wrap on uh, that left knee uh that you could see when he's warming up and i thought it was interesting i just wanted to kind of get and I, i'll do this a lot of times with young players i mean it's not the be all end all so take these with a grain of salt but it is information that's available that you know i think is not completely meaningless so i watched lonzo ball's uh pre-game shooting uh he took a bunch of threes you know there's some variety to it pretty decently hard workout uh between catch and shoot step backs he was working uh, on shooting off the dribble going to his right or at least shooting catch and shoots on the move to his right which he's actually hit a couple of uh, in recent weeks uh from three he was 41 out of 73 uh, on all the ones that i counted uh and then he took 39 catch and shoot twos which i thought was a little odd i don't know why you would ever have him taking a catch and shoot two uh maybe it's something just to try to get him in rhythm that's what he started at uh 23 out of 39 on those and then 14 of 15 on free throws so that was good to see him at least you know he can make free throws in practice although we've seen a lot of guys who can make free throws in practice and can't make them in the game and he uh you know will continue to have some really bad misses i thought just watching him you you know because we were sitting together uh that there's a lot of inconsistencies uh, in his release i am 
miles away from being a shooting expert, but what I I generally separate when I look at a guy, the kind of the upper body and the lower body, because that's kind of I can only really focus on one at a time. I'm, I and with him, I I get so much consternation on the upper body. It, it gives me physical pain to watch the upper body of Lonzo's shooting motion that I wanted to watch his jump. And what was really concerning to me with that part of it, and you can really only get that to me in person, just because you can watch it in, at a different level, and because it's always on the sh- it's always in the shot if you're looking at it in person. And his jumps were inconsistent in basically every way that jumps can be inconsistent. The the height wasn't uniform. The the kind of the the build up wasn't uniform. The leg positioning wasn't uniform. And the reason I wanted to focus on that was because to me, if you're overhauling a guy's jump shot again, not an expert in that, my idea was kind of like, well, what's usable here? And my I kind of just because it got he has so many reps as a shooter, given going back to Chino Hills, that I thought the lower body was going to be more consistent than it was. And it it absolutely isn't. And so I don't know somebody in this field would know better, but it seems like if you need to retool everything, that that makes it a better argument to to try some more wholesale changes, even if you don't end up sticking with them. Yeah, I think especially when you notice how far forward he'll jump on a lot of these uh, and, and that that will change to a, a great degree, to, depending on the shot, depending on which direction he's going. And, you know, that, that 41 out of 73, and for a 19-year-old rookie, especially because some of those are pretty tough shots, they're not bad, but he also has a lot of really inconsistent misses, uh, you know, where just he'll be way off left to right, you know, which is never good when you're a shooter. Uh, way short, a, a lot of times, I was sitting with a a guy who's a trainer watching him and he kind of said that some of the same stuff that like you know his rhythm can be off a lot of times like the footwork it's not quite natural yet and you know he can get a lot better again we're talking about a 19 20 year old rookie shooting nba threes at least he can make them you know that that's a, at times and he has shot better now he's a shooting's been on the wane again uh these last few games surprisingly few lakers fans tweeting me as were tweeting me when you know he was shooting 40 percent for a couple of months uh oh hi Celtic expands with jason tatum yeah 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 uh but he said you know a lot of times just his footwork is not right he'll kind of be choppy it just won't be smooth um and then i also watched ingram you know maybe take a little bit less from this because you know he wasn't quite healthy healthy this wasn't really game speed he was 21 out of 40 and catch and shoot threes and then they really didn't have him doing many catch and shoot twos it was more off the drill and he actually was 24 out of 29 on those again at, at a pretty slow speed so make of that what you will you know 21 out of 40 is not great and he was shooting easy step in ones he wasn't shooting off the dribble uh tougher ones like lonzo um so 21 out of 40 to me means all right you know you're probably again it could have just been a bad day but if that's what he's shooting on average on uncontested three-pointers you know you're probably not really there yet as an nba three-point shooter to shoot you know above 35 percent. that's generally you know the, the best shooters in the league you know if you're just shooting just straight up set shots uncontested you know you're probably at 80 percent from three that's the best guys in the league you know some some other guys guys 60 percent, but a lot of it depends too are you on the move are you shooting step back to you off the dribble you know there's not every practice shot of course is made equal so uh probably all we want to say uh, on them let's uh move on here who is next now we get into uh the true tankers of the world well actually we'll start this with the team that should be more of a true tanker than they are the sacramento kings 23 and 48 on the season they are three and four since the last 15 and 60 still 29th in net rating negative eight point three 29th in offense 29th in defense and so 538 projects that they will have 27 wins and i was sitting there after watching because the the king's heat game was going on at while while we we were at oracle for 
for the Warriors game against the Lakers. Yeah, the it was Lakers. La- last one. Yeah, during the Lakers game, and I was and I was sitting there going, why Why did I think that they were weren't gonna screw up the 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 tank somehow? Because there are two big factors. One is you know just organizationally they don't necessarily have that in the same direction. You can go with Vlade, whatever you want to do there. But also they have a lot of guys that are are good effort players, and I mean Bogdan Bogdanovich, De'Aaron Fox to a point, Buddy Heald and Buddy Heald that we'll talk about him in a little bit. But like these are players that it's not surprising that they're at, they're giving a shit right now because they have a lot to play for and they're prideful guys. Yeah, the Kings now have massively overperformed that point differential. They're cl- in part due to outstanding clutch performance. They are actually 20 and 16 in close games, which and they have a plus 11 net rating, which, you know, granted, it's only five minutes at a time for, you know, within five points, under five minutes to go. But to have that good of a net rating for a team that overall has a negative eight net rating is pretty remarkable. That's in, in 139 minutes. Uh, they have the six ranked defense a, a lot of that due to luck the uh opponents shooting 28 percent on threes against them in the clutch and they have the number one clutch three-point percentage which you think oh man that's totally crazy well actually the kings overall as a team are number two in the nba in three-point percentage but 27th in total attempt and, and buddy healed has really been awesome in the clutch as well he has 67.5 percent true shooting on 24.4 usage had the go-ahead free throws against the warriors which ended up being the game-winning free throws. He drove on Nick Young. Nick Young fouled him. Surprise, surprise. And he got those two and nailed those. And then Draymond took a horrendous three and the Kings won the game. Congratulations. And he had some big shots. And the other takeaway that I've had, which has been so intriguing, he's had an up and down season. De'Aaron Fox, at bare minimum, has the confidence of himself and his team to take a lot of shots in key situations. He had three makes in the final three minutes against the Warriors, mostly at the expense of Kevon Looney, who was closing that game. He had the game-tying floater against Miami and missed a few shots late in the fourth and then in overtime and then he missed a potential go-ahead shot in the final minute against the Jazz after he had dunked to tie the game I think that was at 94. Yeah, and the, we'll talk more about Fox next week when we take stock of their young players. Would you like to... So, so what draft pick are they projected to get right now, by the way? So right now, they would be, on the current 538 projections, they would be tied for the 6-7 slash ping-pong ball combinations with the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah, and as bad as uh, this season has been for them, that would be a, a pretty massive disappointment to not even get in the top five, because uh, they certainly have been a top five worst team this season season in terms of their actual quality um you want to play a little uh king's trivia here sure one king to play over 200 minutes has a positive net rating this season who is it so i my first thought was it's not going to be a guy who regularly starts for them because i know generally their bench has been way more successful than their starters so i'm gonna go with garrett temple ah he's a negative 8.6 net rating ah. <laughs> sorry <laughs> i i will give you a hint uh he has played a mere 220 seven minutes oh okay so it's a low okay Ooh, that's even less than frank mason um it is not bruno by the way he has played no. only 46 minutes yeah i i was pretty confident it wasn't bruno uh, it, it is also not malachi richardson that was actually going to be my next guess so thank you for that 200 wow that's really not many minutes um he is a former philadelphia 76er oh god why is this getting worse for me he is on a two-way contract oh oh that's uh, now i'm trying to remember i don't even remember who the two-way is just tell me he, he got dunked on by zach levine last month jakar sampson yes wow good for you jakar 
0.3 net rating in 227 minutes that was more entertaining than i thought it would be actually okay uh i got two more for you okay which player to play over 200 minutes has the worst net rating on the king oh i'm trying to think of a guy who doesn't start it george hill that is close he is the second worst uh but no this gentleman is still on the team oh unfortunate soul i still think the logic of that was sound kufos the logic was very sound if you follow that same logic you will get the answer it is not Kufos. so i'm thinking of a guy who started a who starts and doesn't always necessarily finish games uh zebo that is correct zach randolph has a negative 13.0 net rating 101 offense 114 defense so uh good signing uh last one a little simpler here who leads the kings in minutes oh god bogdanovich that is absolutely correct i was trying to think of a guy who didn't get hurt seven minutes yes 1877 minutes is about 150 more than willie cauley stein who is second on the team can i give you that concludes the sacramento tankings section well you've you've got one no it's it's not king's based trivia i just looked this up while we were talking because i got intrigued by it so lonzo ball is shooting 46 percent on free throws this season only two guards listed as as per basketball reference have had a free throw percentage below 50 percent playing 750 or more minutes in the last decade one of them is still playing in the league the other one is not both of them are high profile enough that you that people would know who they are any guesses i'll give you three guesses today in the last decade wait so does that mean after 2010 or does that mean i'll tell you i'll tell you both both of them were 2010 or later okay because i was gonna say bruce bowen although he had probably improved enough by oh i'll give you another hint they're uh, both they're both point guards i would consider them both point guards rondo yes 2014-15 percent from the line <laughs> that, that that season in dallas just went so well for him all right so the other player is no longer active that I correct think. this one I'll, I'll just give you a guess and then i'll tell you okay but he's he's famous enough that i i'll uh, like it should come to mind relatively readily yeah and but it is a little bit weird because he had much better free throw shooting for most of his career he just had one bad year oh yeah i probably won't get it then i mean i, I all right let me i'll just try it uh anthony carter no it was chris duhan duhan his last year for the lakers he shot 46 percent from the line that surprised me that was the one that surprised. you know what actually actually like that's one that i think i was aware of at one point that he was just like a horrendous free throw shooter oddly uh but all right uh that concludes the tankings section of the podcast who is next on our list well next would be the dallas mavericks but they're liam's team so we're saving them for last so instead we go to the team that caused the existential crisis as it were in denver the memphis grizzlies they are 19 and 50 one and six since the last 15 and 60 26th in net rating 28th in offense 20th in defense they're projected to have 22 wins by 538 which would put them in a now three-way tie for the most ping pong balls with the phoenix suns and the atlanta hawks which would be pretty exciting if that were to happen i don't think it will and i will i will preface this with something that won't surprise many of you that at periodic moments in time when i have the opportunity i start to write out kind of an idea of where we could go with the 15 and 60 for a given team and i am just going to read what i wrote for the memphis grizzlies on friday night because i was thinking about how do we want to frame this i'm just going to read it in pole position for the most ping pong balls the only team with just 18 wins have lost 20 straight assuming the loss to denver only one double tank game left which is hosting sacramento on april 6th and eight of 13 left against still competing teams well about half of that is wrong now (laughs) 
they've no longer lost 19 straight or 20 straight and they, they were doing so well too because they had lost the previous game despite playing their guys Evans was back uh who started against the the Bulls on on Thursday uh despite the fact that the Bulls were playing Cameron Payne Antonio Blakeney Paul Zipser uh a, a who is uh a devastating Sabo round in the Bulls tank commander quiver good to have him back Noah Vonley and Cristiano Felicio Memphis still lost uh on Blakeney free throws at the end and of course everyone in the locker room was like devastated that they that they didn't win uh and Tyreek being back though I mean I think they're actually gonna start being a lot more competitive again now that he has returned from what people were saying was like oh it's some like tanking rib injury and maybe they held him out a little bit longer but he's back now and uh here to take away your ping pong balls Memphis well, and I cracked up because somebody after the game was like oh see you, you said after the Bulls game was like hey you, you said Tyreek Evans it was gonna make this deal and they lost the Bulls Tyreek Evans was plus 15 in that game and played 33 minutes they just were outscored by 16 in the 15 minutes he didn't play and then he was plus seven in the win against the Nuggets but he had 25 on eight of 18 shooting against the Bulls in his first game back I'm still hoping that our our uh readers who used to read Tom Clancy w- when they were kids uh got that Sabo round joke uh Chandler Parsons uh, has been struggling uh, since he returned from uh, another nebulous injury absence negative 61 in just 77 minutes uh over the course of that 19 game losing streak uh and I wanted to ask if there would be any point in moving on from Parsons this summer either by an attempted trade not that his 24 million next year and 25 million the year after that would necessarily be tradable even by contributing a first round pick or maybe via the stretch provision uh would there be any i mean obviously that would be some prohibitive consequences to doing that you're looking at basically 10 million over the next five years if you stretch him uh remember the formula there is double the number of seasons remaining on the contract plus one so two years left double that is four plus one is five so 50 million over five years 10 million a year uh would that give them any kind of a benefit going into this offseason assuming that their goal is hey we want to try and still be good around conley and gasol uh, as they move into the twilight not really they used the biannual exception this season on tyreek evans so it is unavailable to memphis this coming offseason that's the way it works it's biannual for a reason so all memphis has is their draft pick which will be high we don't know exactly how high the mid-level exception and minimums my current when i looked at their numbers they should have enough space under the tax especially now that james ennis is gone and they're not going to resign him to use the full non-taxpayer mid-level exception even if they get the number one overall pick which they might they might not that's the way it works in terms of lottery odds and they might have enough i think they will to use the troy daniels trade exception which is 3.3 million before it expires if they find somebody to use it on and remember that for evans they pretty much have to use the non-taxpayer mid-level exception either the whole thing or a portion of it because since he was the biannual they can only give him a raise on that smaller salary i think they can only pay him about you know four million if they don't want to use the exception and he's not going to take that money he's not going to take that from them or anybody else so they don't really have many other means to do it which means that trading parsons doesn't give them any additional flexibility and when it doesn't give a team additional flexibility especially with the about 20 million buffer between the cap and the tax that there isn't really an incentive now you could argue possibly that there might be an incentive to stretch him or whatever in 2019-20 but unless Marcus Gasol opts out they're probably not going to have cap space to work with then unless they have to move unless they move their first to Boston because they have that outstanding obligation from the Jeff Green trade and all these other things so I would say the most 
likely outcome here is that they just ride it out with Parsons through these seasons. Maybe they end up buying him out or something like that in the 2019-20 season, but that they keep all the money on the books as it is currently apportioned. Yeah, I have them with Parsons and with their draft pick, I, I project them to be around $7 million over the cap to start next offseason. And the tax line is about $21 million beyond the cap. So you basically got about $14 million to work with uh, between where they'll be and the tax. If they were to stretch him, they would be maybe $8 million below the cap, you know, knock about $14 million off of, so maybe $7 million below the cap, knock about $14 million off of that number, depending again on, on where their draft pick is. You know, that could be between four and seven or eight million, uh, depending on what where that falls. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's really, you know, it's not like they can open up significant cap space anyway. I mean, really, you would have to probably get down to being about 15 million under the cap. And maybe they could try to make some other moves or something like that. But, uh, you know, maybe Ben McLemore could also be stretched or traded away or something, or Jermichael Green could be. But, you know, I don't really see the point of doing that when you consider the resources that'd be required and how badly you would be hamstringing the team going into the future all right last one here phoenix suns uh before we get to dallas of course which is liam's team phoenix suns 19 and 52 zero and six since last time we did this they are dead last they have the troika right now dead last in net rating offense and defense they are eliminated from the playoffs and they have a projected win total of 22 they very very well had a chance to win the game against the warriors fueled by a career night so far in his young career from josh jackson jackson had 36 points against the warriors and scored it a a, a variety of different ways but the the biggest difference for me was his jump shot it looked better and he is certainly more confident in it yeah i i think to me the two ways that he scored the most were in transition against that porous warriors transition defense uh you know he probably had 12 or 14 of his points were just fast break points going to the rim in part though for some difficult finishes uh, on floaters and then the other thing he was doing a lot of was creating space for the jump shot and while his off the dribble twos 36.6 percent for the season is not great that's not awful and i thought at least he's creating space you know the shot looks pretty decent he still brings his off the dribble shot up pretty far in front of his body but it, it was looking good and he was actually creating some space that you know he had one uh, against draymond green that looked pretty good so you know maybe guys are playing him a lot for the drive uh, as they probably should but at least he's creating separation as off the dribble twos go if you just look at how far away the defender was he created separation pretty well also uh, encouraging to me was i thought he took a set shot corner three that was a much quicker release didn't look to be bringing that up way in front of his body the way he, he likes to you know and he's a guy who at times has looked more comfortable shooting off the dribble so i thought that corner three was encouraging the speed of the release the fact that it was a more compact delivery he also threw a, a couple of pretty nice passes one beautiful left-handed bounce pass off the dribble to a, a cutter going back door two really nice alley-oops uh to marquis chris which are in, in pretty tight windows that's something that you know was talked about for him coming into the draft he was a, a better passer than you'd think for a guy who you know profile is more of an athletic energy type of guy and since february 1st 17 points a game certainly has had plenty of minutes at, at 29 and a half per game and an acceptable shooting 52 percent true shooting although with him on the floor only 96.3 offensive rating it's not amazing 26 percent usage and that's right about where he's been for the full season in terms of usage but the shooting has been better uh 
since february 1st you know again we're kind of cherry picking it doesn't work this way like oh hey let's you know it's a young guy and he's playing better towards the end of the year that's what he's going to be we discount the first half of the season that's not really how it works uh but showing a few signs at least although the three-pointer still has not particularly been there only 26 percent on catch and shoot threes 10 out of 39 since february 1st and four out of 13 on pull-up threes but the pull-up two-pointer has been working uh 42 percent which is not horrendous i still want to see more from him defensively that was a part of the appeal and he's certainly competitive on that end but i I, you know he's going to have to be more more active and physically dominant ideally against whatever position he's going to defend and something else to to watch with the suns especially if you have this kind of interest like i do they still have three more games double tank games they play at orlando this coming saturday and then two in april which could be just ghastly they host sacramento on april 3rd and then the last game of the year phoenix at dallas when dallas at that point could just they could see the writing on the wall and just play some truly abysmal things out there oh man i mean that like do you remember all those signings that dallas had at the end of last year that were like specifically to help them tank then they won i think it was at memphis anyway last year which was like which was pretty hilarious uh devin booker missed that warriors game by the way with a, a bruised hand he tried to play thursday played 34 minutes and then was out we'll see when in fact uh he returns he had some interesting comments which he got f- some flack for but i i didn't think it was really fair he basically said you know our, we're spoiled like the the players on the team are spoiled and you know i think if you just see that quote you think like oh you know that's really like something negative on the character but you know i think it's something that he said that he was echoing something that jay chiron had said which is basically they're spoiled in the sense that you know they've been gifted minutes uh, and so there's not really as much accountability when players make mistakes and booker you know he included himself in that uh, obviously uh, as well and so i thought that was an interesting and kind of a self-aware quote because i think that has been a problem for the suns teams the last couple of years you know basically since they moved on from Dragic, that's essentially been the case so uh no problem with those comments at all i mean at least it's something that they that he acknowledges and you know that it's not all just and he's he's taken some strides this year defensively still has a long way to go as an off-ball defender but i think he competes more at least on the ball this year but it's good at least that he kind of recognizes the problem that you know it's not just all about scoring it's about not making mistakes and executing and that you know at least step one is identifying what the issue is yeah it's good to see that and there might be some prolonged pain here with the suns we don't know exactly what they're going to do in their off season and so you have to have to maintain a level of perspective with this because it is challenging i mean there there are different arguments i mean we even saw rudy gobert comment on tanking this past week but circumstances dictate a lot of it and the only way to kind of get through it and we're seeing this with the Sixers now is to kind of grin and bear it and understand that it's a part of a longer thing let's finish up here now with the Dallas Mavericks Liam's team so that's why they're last though they are not last in the standings and in fact are on pace for being one of the unluckiest teams that we've seen in some time having uh on pace to lose seven games more than their point differential would have indicated that puts them right up there with some of those legendary Minnesota squads uh to lose seven games more than expected is a pretty massive number but really not about that for dallas this season in fact the losses have probably helped them to get better lottery odds and so liam i want to bring you in here uh we assigned you the mavs this week so why don't you start talking a little bit about nerland who made his long-awaited return from thumb surgery although he uh needs a rest uh, after that in that return from injury management which is kind of funny but uh how's he been doing since his return well i think he's been pretty good he's been pretty similar to the player that we've come to know 
uh, you know, with his strengths and his flaws. Defensively, I think his hands are still as good as any, you know, bigs, you know, that there is in the league. He stripped uh, ball handlers probably like five, six times in the Toronto game, including he got DeMar DeRozan a couple times, whose handle is usually pretty tight. Uh, he threw, you know, some good passes from the elbow to some cutters. So his vision's there, even though his decision making isn't always the greatest. And in 120 minutes since the, his return from the injury in eight games, I think, he's got a 95 defensive rating when he's on the floor. So the defense has been really good with him on. So that, and that shows up just watching them too. Uh, he's made some really good defensive rotations. He took a charge. He's blocked some shots at the rim. He's been good in help. And he, he does go for a couple, you know, blocks that he shouldn't and gives up putbacks off of that. But I think overall, he's been a you know, big positive on the defensive end, which is what we thought he would be coming into the year. And on offensively, I think he's done some good things. I mentioned a little bit of the passing earlier, and he's very active on the offensive glass. And I thought he set some good screens. He's not finishing at the rim at all. Nine for 21, 42 percent in eight games since he's come yeah. back from yeah, injury. What, what that, what yeah, what does that look like, so Liam? When, uh, to be nine out of 21, I mean, is it basically like if it's not a dunk, it's just not going to go in? Is that kind of how it's been? Uh, Pretty much in the games I saw. So I obviously haven't seen 21 attempts of it, but uh, there, there was one play specifically where he just ran out in the full court and he got like an alley-oop off of a transition play and he tried to lay it off the glass and it just it looked pretty ugly. So I think I think a lot of it's just touch of the rim. He still has that bounce, so I wouldn't be worried about his athleticism just decreasing. It's just the overall touch around the rim. Yeah, and that's something that's never been a, a particular strength of his. Uh, right. So what have you guys seen from him? Uh, you know, in the eight games since he's come back, or and I guess in a larger picture, like what do you guys see him getting this summer? Or what type of offers would he get? This is a very tough year for a center to be out there because the supply is going to be pretty high and the demand is very low, even of the teams that have space. Chicago is a good example of this. Chicago has the space. They could make him a good offer, but I don't think they're particularly looking to spend it on a center. And the confluence of a couple of those teams, Dallas included in this, having space, but also potentially drafting a center because this, from what I have heard, haven't seen it all the way yet myself, is a center heavy top of the draft. So I think it's going to be a, a narrower market for him than he'd like. I'm thinking more in the somewhere in kind of the one of the two mid-level exceptions for maybe three years, something in that range. I think he can outperform that contract. I'm a believer in his defense in Noel's defensive potential, but the uncertainty and the fact that he it looks like he might be going away from his second team without them fighting too hard to keep him. I think that both of those things are somewhat notable. Yeah, and for Noel I remember, of course, he reportedly turned on that four for 70 contract that he was offered in the offseason. Uh, he will not be getting that. Um, but at least what's encouraging is that they haven't just absolutely sucked when he's been on the floor. And that first stint that he had, they were had like a negative 18 net rating and he had fallen out of the rotation, justifiably so. He had just been so bad that if they were trying to win games. Uh, and now I guess he's playing well enough that they decided to just have him sit for no real reason. So maybe maybe that's an indication that the organization is pleased with uh with how he's playing yeah that's that could definitely be the case they're, they're kind of you know rejiggering their rotation every couple games this late in the season they're just trying to get a good look at everybody on the roster but that's definitely a possibility uh, one question that i wanted to you know ask you guys and this is more of a question than me stating something but uh i was just watching them play and they were playing the jj berea yogi Farrell backcourt and i figured they must have been getting killed you know with that lineup defensively and that that lineup actually has a 100 101.6 defensive rating in in nearly like 1500 processions and some of that's three point luck but some of that's also like strong defense and so I, I went around and I looked at the league and just all the different guard combos that like play two really small point guards together and Kyle Lowry Fred Van Fleet have a 105.1 uh, Lillard and Napier have a 105.4 Irving and Rosier
Wazir, 106.6. And they, those have varying degrees of three-point luck. But I wanted to ask you guys if you think there's might be anything to like smaller defensive backcourts being more effective defensively. Uh, just and my, my, I don't know, my thought on it might be that just teams are taking a look at, you know, Yogi Ferrell at shooting guard and breaking it out of their offense to attack that matchup and try and, I don't know, post it up with a two guard that might not be that adept at it. And I just remember watching Milwaukee play Toronto and they were trying to attack Kyle Lowry with Chris Middleton on post-ups and they weren't having any success with it. So I was just wondering if you guys, if there was anything to that, if you guys thought, you know, maybe teams are att- uh, trying to attack those matchups too much and in effect being less effective overall offensively. I don't have anything other than hypotheses because uh, I haven't studied it in depth even to the point that, that you have. I mean, some of these guys, like Kyle Lowry is just a good post defender. You know, he's strong. Lillard's another guy who's a, a little stronger than expected. I think that the approach of going after guys in the post, especially because a lot of these units are backups, and so backup units for the other team often provide more places to help from. If it is a post-up, that takes time off the clock. And just in general now, NBA teams don't post up nearly as much as they used to. It's not a, a part of the offense, how to deal with double teams is not something that teams do as much i mean to me the biggest disadvantage of a team playing small guards together is uh when those guys are off the ball in a couple of ways one they just can't do anything at the rim to contest shots if they're trying to tag uh from off the ball and then on closeouts they just don't have the height to close out against taller players and so i do think we've been big fans of two point guard lineups i think there's more depth at the point guard position than shooting guard you can kind of take you know two slightly plus ball handlers and get a good offense out of that whereas you know if you just had one middling point guard and a shooting guard you just you're not gonna have enough playmaking on the floor so i'm a a big fan of those and it'll be interesting to see whether teams begin to be able to exploit those but some of those combinations that you mentioned i mean berea and and farrell maybe are are the only one that doesn't have at least one guy who's a a pretty strong uh point guard who can deal with post up so i'm not sure what to make of it but it's encouraging for those teams and should embolden them and perhaps others to go to more of those looks. It's also worth noting that a fair portion of those Berea Farrell minutes actually came in an Energizer, the Energizer Bunny lineup, as Steve Kerr called it, with a third point guard, Devin Harris. And that's what Carlisle has been bringing to the table. Devin Harris obviously since traded to the Denver Nuggets. But that idea of basically bringing more shot creation and when you're going against a second unit, those players are not as capable, as Nate said, of taking advantage of it. So I really like it in that context now in the playoffs when starters are playing more and teams have a higher concentration of talent i think those lineups will have some greater challenges but i'm excited to see most notably the lowry van vliet combination and i was critical of the way the raptors used that Dwayne casey in the houston game because i thought van vliet couldn't guard james harden and those sorts of circumstances will present themselves where you just have fewer circumstances where those guys are are viable but i want to see it tried out because we have better talent trying this now than we have in the recent past. Right. And I think, like you said, I think in the playoffs, you could see, uh, you know, different, uh, uh, less success with these types of lineups defensively. But even if they can hold up as average, you're obviously bringing more on-ball creation onto the floor and offensive talent. So if they can just manage to win that trade off and just hold up the decently defensively, I think that could be, you know, a useful idea for teams to try more so, of. So, oh yeah, well, uh, well another thing actually, I wanted to dive let me in. just because we screwed oh, up, we, we forgot to say their fundamentals, uh, 22 and 48 
uh a disastrous three and three in their last six winning too many games uh but only a negative 2.5 net rating which is much better than their point differential as we discussed 23rd in offense uh but as you noted the 16th ranked defense they're projected to have 26 wins uh but how the hell have they gotten to the 16th ranked defense given what their personnel is well i have that same question for you but just going through uh some of the stats that i looked up and, and just to go over like fr- from a personnel standpoint like you would i don't know at least i would think this would be like a bottom five defensive team in the league like who are their like major plus defenders that have actually been playing a lot of minutes like wesley matthews harrison barnes devin harrison those, those aren't like you know extremely impactful defenders in the first place and with all the liabilities they have you know dirk dennis smith jj berea yogi farrell now doug mcdermott you, you would think there's way too many holes for them to cover up for but they, they've adopted kind of a you know extremely conservative defensive scheme with the defensive rebound pretty well they're fifth best in that and they allow the lowest sh- percentage of shots at the rim and i assume that's just because they're dropping their back way big i know they are with dirk just because he can't even move outside the paint so they're really daring teams to take mid-range shots i think they're pretty good in that i think you know fifth best at forcing teams to take mid-range shots or around there and another thing that's really helping out is they're completely punting on offensive rebounds they're last in the league by a considerable mar- margin and as a result their transition defense is eighth best and part of that's you know playing dirk 25 minutes a game he's not going to be in the paint at all so he'll probably be leaking out to get back faster so part of that's personnel but part of that's also strategy based and i just i i don't know the only answer i could come up with is that you know carlisle's really done a great job of you know fitting the scheme to the personnel and you know trying to account for the liabilities that they have to the best of his ability but what, what have you guys you know seen from their defense so far i mean i i assume you guys didn't expect them to be middle of the league so far and i don't know what do you guys attribute that to one other point I want to make before we get in nuts and bolts of it is that an easy backline thing to think about in these, and I always do when the team outperforms their talent, is luck in terms of opponent shooting. They do not have that. I mean, so opponents are, they're middle of the road in terms of opponent three-point percentage. They're actually a little bit unlucky. Uh, they're on the unlucky side in terms of mid-range, and then they're they're giving up the second highest percentage at the rim. But as you said, they're giving up the, the fewest sh- proportion of shots at the rim. So I think a lot of it is, you know, getting back into transition forcing the right shots they are getting they are allowing a lot of mid-range shots which is is exactly what you would expect and it's very fascinating and I I, when I watch them I don't necessarily see a team like what I've seen from Portland this year that is really necessarily preventing teams really doing a great job of executing system but again they don't make as many just catastrophic mistakes as I as I expected from their personnel and I remember noticing that in the game against Toronto this week where they just weren't giving up as many blow buys and that sort of circumstance I had expected given it's late in the year all that other kind of stuff that you see from a team that's clearly out of the play I think you're being a little bit low uh, on Wes and Harrison Barnes just because they're not guys that opposing teams are going to target and they just have they have those guys they can switch with at least some and I think potentially as well you know you mentioned that they had these small guards they're still willing to switch with those guys a lot and say hey you know what we're going to slow you down we're keeping you in the half court we're going to switch yeah okay you might be able to attack us but we're going to load the defense to you we're going to make you deliberately attempt to attack this matchup we're not going to give you an immediate opening the way you might quickly because we switch we've still we're always going to have a man in front of you even if that man's a foot shorter than the guy that he's guarding but and they do a pretty good job other than maybe dennis smith of avoiding mental mistakes i mean you don't really have any guys maybe nerland's in his first and he's been a little bit better recently you don't have guys who are just blowing it um 
uh by just making mistakes and, and just giving up easy system buckets to the other team you know they're at least executing even if they are limited in talent and, and as you alluded to i think uh, much of that uh, belongs uh that credit belongs to ricarlo right and the other the other thing that you mentioned with just trying to limit you know dribble penetration i think that's maybe where playing a lot of those guards you know comes into play where they had devin harris a lot of the year and when he's playing the three he sure you know maybe six inches shorter than the guy he's guarding but they're gonna have a tough time beating him off the dribble and that may be what's limiting those attempts at the rim so anything else that, that just popped out um, to you here as you were watching uh, the Mavs I just have a couple of like small notes and maybe you can comment on them if you want uh Dorian Finney-Smith came back from injury a couple of games ago and he looked to be have pretty good athleticism he had a massive and one dunk on Jonas Valanciunas in that game JJ Barea is having his best year at age 33 he's got a career high in points true shooting percentage assist percentage and shooting at the rim and he's shooting 65 percent of the rim I have no idea how he's doing that at his size he is a masterful finisher I mean he he gets his shoulder into guys if they try to jump over him he'll flop and accentuate the contact for a call I think guys you know he never shoots unless he knows that he can get the shot off and you know they've been playing with some pretty good spacing as well his combination with Dwight Powell they'll bring Dirk back in on that second unit a lot of times so they got good spacing around him but he really just he only takes it when he knows he can make it but he's he can use his body to bump guys off and they're scared of following him so he can actually get more shots up around the rim than you would expect it's really uh his skill level in that regard is pretty impressive it's crazy i have i have no idea you know how he's gotten this good at it especially at this late age where he's supposed to be regressing yeah i mean if you're a small point Um, guard you know because isaiah thomas despite the fact that he's about the same size as berea is a freak athlete you know i mean he was and certainly there's a lot to learn from him for finishing too but jj bray is not a freak athlete so if you're a small guard who's in among the trees all the time like he's the number one guy in the league you should probably watch film of because he's doing it without like some incredible athletic advantage and just one more quick note on uh dirk's year he's having right now he's at 58 percent true shooting percentage and i pulled it up here and you can look at it at nba.com but if you pull up his shot chart it's just entirely green which is just crazy to think he's shooting like 40 over 40 percent from three he, he rarely shoots at the rim but he's good at there when yeah. he decides 36, to his mid-range is crazy too. attempts at the rim and also interesting almost zero attempts from the corners as well only 17 attempts from the corners so it's still working in in that high pick and roll uh all year that's uh, what he's been doing but the three ball i think has really been working for him more than it has of late yeah he, he, it's it's incredible you know what he's doing at his age i mean defensively obviously he's a liability but just the fact that he can still be an offensive weapon and a threat and the gravity that he still has even though if it's all catch and shoot i think he's assisted on way more of his shots than he used to be but still it's impressive what he's doing at his age all right well that'll do it oh yeah go ahead one, that, that uh, will not do it that'll do it for just one other statement. one one other <laughs> <laughs> just one other quick note with them we're going to talk about this at a future point but they might have one of the top five most intellectually interesting off seasons in the entire league we're going to go through another point but i spent like a half an hour earlier this week just thinking about what the heck they're going to do and i was really excited about it because high draft pick flexibility all that we'll talk about it in the future i already wrote some notes on it but i'm really i'm really interested in it all right well we can't even blame the fact that we're punchy at the end of two hours because we're recording this one first so uh sorry for interrupting you guys but uh that'll do it for today thanks so much for listening we'll be back tomorrow got an interesting pod coming up we're gonna do our 2020 crystal ball we did it for 2019 so we're gonna go back first of all and see how our predictions for 2019 which we did about a year ago are progressing i'm guessing probably not too well but i haven't actually gone back and looked at what i said yet uh and then we'll try and uh look two years ahead into the future in 2020 and uh see if we can take a guess 
at what the landscape of the league will be. We'll talk to you all then. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.